Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is show number 50 for August 2015. I'm your co-host number one, Quinn Dunkey. And with me as always is co-host number two, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? Woo! I'm here! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, should be a really big deal because, you know, big round number and everybody likes big round numbers. It's show number 50. Well, technically it's, uh, I mean, technically it's not 50 because we did a bunch of special special episodes and, and I think even you and I have done a couple of like dot five shows. So I think there's like 58 or 59 pieces of media associated with Open <laughs> Apple that you can watch, but yay for number 50 anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. I think we talked about doing something special for episode fifty, and uh, and then didn't. So uh, here we go. Awesome. Well, hey, look, hey, it, this is I think is your your one year uh, of being co-host on the show. How's that? It is, yeah, because it was at Kansas Fest uh, last year that I got uh, browbeaten into being as co-host uh, on this show to replace the <laughs> illustrious Mr. Gagney. He's a tough act to follow. Uh, so this uh, this is yeah my one year anniversary on uh, Open Apple. So woo. Right. Uh, and uh, as I guess in celebration of that uh, fact, I've been getting also uh, peer pressured into joining Twitter. So uh, I've recently done <laughs> oh, that, no. for, uh, I guess, apparently by popular demand. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so anyone who wants to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at Quinn Dunkey. And I'll have that link in the show notes, of course. Uh, it's going to be just uh, mostly updates about the show here and about my blog and possibly, you know, making fun of Commodores and whatever else is on my mind. So of course, won't be very exciting, I'm sure. But there you go. All right. Well, at least one of us uh, got to attend Kansas Fest this year. Sadly, it was not me. But uh, Quinn, you went there. You had a great time and uh, you brought back a guest. I did indeed. The uh, illustrious keynote speaker, a uh, legend in the industry, Rebecca Bergerbecki Heinemann, who is with us on the show this month. Uh, thanks for joining us, Becky. How you doing? I'm doing quite well. Thank you. Excellent. Well, uh, yeah, well, since we're on the subject of Kansas Fest, why don't we dive right in with that? Uh, how How was your visit this year after having not been for so many years? It was actually a, a little bit of new and a little bit of, okay, where have I been all these years? Uh, it's <laughs> back to the fact that the last time I was at Kansas Fest was when they were still holding it at Avila College, which now I've come to find that was like 10 years ago. So it's like, okay, I, I've been away for a while. <laughs> but I used to Where be does regular. the time go? Yeah, where does the time go? Because I was a regular from the day it was conceived till around the early 2000s, which was when Kansas Fest kind of tr just dried up. And at the same time, I really got busy doing uh, console video game development. So I kind of just stopped going and then I kind of just drifted away. What brought you back this year? And, and not only that, but motivated a whole lot of Apple II-ish type output from you recently. Well, there was a, it's like a perfect storm almost. It all really started about six months ago when um, a friend of mine, Eric Shepard, was telling, talking mm. about going back to Kansas Fest. And then he said he couldn't make it for him health reasons. And my first reaction to, to him was that they're still doing that? <laughs> and he then uh, gave me the website and so forth, which I went and checked it out. At that point, I then went ahead and more out of a just 
uh, curious than anything else, I sent an email off to their uh, info. It was like info at kansasfest.org saying, hey, how's you going? And if you ever guys want me to just talk there, you know, I'll be more than happy to help out. And that's really about all I said. And I didn't even expect them to answer. And then it was like, oh, a couple weeks later, I got a reply back from them saying like, are you really Rebecca Heinemann? <laughs> and after two emails convincing them that, yes, I am Rebecca Heinemann. Why is there a problem here? And then it was the incredulity that I actually was willing to talk, let alone acknowledge their existence. Well, it was only a few more emails after that. They booked me as the keynote speaker, and the rest is history. What was your uh, reaction to it? I mean, as far as seeing it again after so many years, is it had it changed? Uh, was it still, you know, like, were a lot of the same people there? What was your what was your sort of first impression? Well, my first impression was at at first it was it was a new college, new people, new everything. So I really was a little uncomfortable at the very beginning uh, because there was almost nothing of the original Kansas says that I rem remembered being there, such as like different locations. So the whole map of the locations was different. The people, none of them I knew. Um, the only people that I knew from Kansas Fest, unfortunately, a majority of them had already passed away, like Joe Cohn and Ryan Zinica and Tony Gonzalez. They were all very close friends of mine. And, you know, each one of them, you know, I, I attended the funerals on, on two of them. So, of course, like, that was kind of depressing. And then the other two people attendees would have been Eric Shepard and Tony Diaz, which I understand are still regulars, but for whatever reason, they decided not to attend this year. So there were no familiar faces for me. But once I sat down, got to the door rooms and started walking up and down the halls, that's when the familiarity started setting in. It's like, well, I remember back at Avila when everybody had a door open. You go in there and you see people, all their equipment and the soldering irons and the circuit boards and stuff. And it's like, okay, now this is the Kansas Fest I remember. <laughs> and with that, within like an hour or two, I was essentially home again. And it was also part of it was like, you know, I was when I brought with my with me my two GS, which I hadn't even powered up in fifteen years. Um, so I was actually half expecting it to spark and spritz, et cetera, when I plugged it in, <laughs> but instead it powers up boots and like, wow. whoa, but granted it's a 40, I was actually in that case it was like a, almost a 30 year old drive mechanism. I was completely shocked the thing still ran. So with the help of some other Tanzas Fest attendees, I was able to get a, a compact flash hard drive and copy everything from my existing drive onto the new drive. And with that, another attendee said, hey, I have an inner drive with a bad power supply. And I said, I have an inner drive with a bad hard drive. <laughs> I think we could make beautiful music together here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a little, little bit of soldering here and there, out came a working inner drive. And for me, it's like, well, I got a compact flash drive. Why would I need an inner drive now? Here, you can have my, uh, <laughs> my mechanism. Have fun. Oh, by the way, here's the source code, the actual ROM, because I was the one who wrote it. So. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, if if uh, if you're going to have hardware that needs help or doesn't work, that's definitely the place to bring it. Yes. And it was very nice. It was also kind of a little surprising and a little bit humbling that uh, 
the very fact that when I was expressing any sort of interest in bringing back some of my old games and so forth, and it says, yeah, it would be nice, but I don't have a monitor. Within minutes, I had like three people offering me monitors. And it's just like, well, I don't <laughs> have a working mouse. Here's a working mouse. Here's a working keyboard. Here's a working this. It's like, well, but so when I flew back, I had pretty much everything I needed to get my 2GS running where I first entered with just a bare bones GS. No monitor, no keyboard, no mouse. No, nothing. When I came home, I had a complete system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kansas Fest is funny that way. Everybody goes home with armloads of hardware. Just the generosity of everyone is, is quite amazing. That's true. So did you stay for the entire week or did a lot of the, a lot of the um, keynote speakers either fly in just for the day or maybe hang out for an extra day? I stayed in until Saturday. I was under, if I recall, Kansas Fest actually concludes the end of Sunday. But, yeah, Sunday morning, I think, yeah, is when people start moving out. Exactly. I st I left on, uh, like, the afternoon of Saturday. Also, I took Friday off because we had family in the area. So I was there for the uh, – I arrived Tuesday, did the keynote on Wednesday, spent all day Thursday just hanging out with the Kansas Fest. Friday, in the middle of the day, my wife and I – went uh, to other parts of Kansas to visit family and sightsee. But then Friday night, spent it in the company of Kansas Fest attendees. And of course, Saturday morning, Kansas Fest again, and then back home. So you got the chance to see some of the, uh, some of the other presentations and sessions and things like that. Did you have any particular favorites or any moments that really stand out to you as kind of wow or, or really great memories? Uh, well, some of them, I like the technical talks. I mean, Quinn herself, uh, she did a talk <laughs> about her APIs I uh, I enjoyed. Plus, all her adventures with the mouse was hilarious that she was having this <laughs> issue with an Apple IIc mouse. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember solving that back in 1985, <laughs> 86. This is what you got to do to fix it. It's like, that can't be right. So get trust me. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should, uh, I should tell that story. So uh, for anyone who wasn't, uh, wasn't there or doesn't, doesn't know, I had uh, built a, uh, a mouse driver for uh, the 2E Enhanced and 2C and 2C Plus. And uh, I did a, a talk about it at the show. And... Uh, it had sort of one uh, lingering bug in it, which was uh, that on the 2C, uh, the, uh, the interrupts are such that you don't get notified when the mouse button goes up, only when it goes down. And so it's very uh, difficult to make uh, double clicking work. You can only detect uh, new button down events after the mouse uh, has moved. And so I had been really struggling with that. And I did my talk uh, with that bug still in the code. And I had mentioned that. And uh, so, yeah, afterwards, uh, uh, Becky came up to me and she's like, oh, well, you know, here's how you fix that. You got to use vertical blank interrupt as kind of like a watchdog timer and uh, watch the state of the mouse button. And uh so, uh, yeah, I started thinking along those lines, and uh, sure enough, uh, it was actually pretty pretty easy to do once I knew kind of what direction to go in and uh, got it working by the time of my following session, which also had a, a mouse component to it. So it was it was amazing. It was Kansas Fest at its best, honestly. You know, collaboration, people that know stuff, people that want to know stuff, uh, you know, hacking and helping each other out. It was fantastic. After we had that meeting, after I got home, I pulled up my source code to Borrowed Time. It's an Apple II game I did, which had was one of my first games with the mouse interface. And I pulled the source code, and yeah, I found my mouse driver, and there was some 
colorful words in there about how I call <laughs> the mouse driver. So it's like watchdog typer, if Apple to see, and then there was some colorful language, and then it activated a vertical blank interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I think I wrote that same code uh, at, uh, late at night at uh, Kansas Fest. <laughs> so speaking of, of source code, in addition to showing up at Kansas Fest and wowing everybody, you've also been uh, digging through some of your old archives and, and releasing some stuff that was once thought perhaps long lost. Can you talk about that? Well, um, I'm meticulous, I'm very meticulous in storing and archiving source code. I've, I've been doing this in my entire career. Um, so like pretty much every game I've worked on in some fashion or another, I have a complete archive of everything I worked on. Um, because I know how valuable this code is uh, in the sense that A, either from a learning experience or B, in some cases, I you know nowadays there's been a resurgence of retro gaming and a lot of uh, my competitors, what they do is they just simply get a copy of the original binaries and run DOSBox on or some sort of emulator where I'm saying, well, why would you want to run an emulator when I could just pull up the source code and either do a translator on it, or in my case with Bard's Tale right now, I'm actually reporting it to Windows because I have the source, so I have all the math and all of the tables. It was kind of trivial for me to get a native version of the game running modern. Well, as I was going through my archives, I have complete disk images of my Apple IIGS, and they're sitting on my hard drive and so forth. Like when I was backing up the hard drive that was at Kansas Fest, um, after I'd gone through the hard drive, I realized, nope, there's absolutely nothing on the hard drive that I didn't already have backups of. So it was like, good, if there was something hidden there, nope. But I have been going through, just recently, a bunch of floppy disks, and I did find some source code that I'd never had backups of, but I was able to recover. An example just recently I announced was Taxman, which is the original Apple II game written by Brian Fitzgerald for uh, HAL Labs. But then again, I've also found my source code to like the unfinished game of SimCity, um, the Ooh. Ultima, Bard's Tale, Wasteland, all these other games. Some of them are finished, some of them are not. And then, of course, with the help of Oliver Gogel over at Brutal Deluxe, he was able to give me a copy of the source code to an assembler he wrote, which allowed me to recompile his code and get it running. And my first victim to this was this code to a game I did called Space Ace. And nice. I actually... I talked with Digital Leisure, and they said they actually don't have a claim to that source because it was done by a game called a company called ReadySoft, who has disappeared. Hmm. So since they said, well, we don't have to worry about the quality of the graphics of that game because if anybody ships a version of Space Ace stealing that graphics, uh, you might sell a copy, maybe two. And since the source code, they had no ownership claim to it at all, they said, fine, you want to release a source? We don't care. So I did. <laughs> and then, of course, I've been asking permission for people who have other copyrights, such as like uh, Brian Fitzgerald just recently sent me a, an email blessing my uh, endeavor to release the source code to Taxman. So by the time that this uh, podcast airs, it should be up on GitHub. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah, we'll link to that. Yeah, Taxman, for anyone who doesn't know, of course, was a, an excellent Pac-Man clone for the Apple II. And uh, it would be a great great lesson in high-res graphics uh, programming for anyone who wants to learn uh, more about that. Uh, I think you posted on Facebook recently, Becky, that you also found the source code for Neuromancer. Is that right? Yes, I found the source code to Neuromancer. 
Um, I found the source code to um, all the um, VTest stuff, uh, Harmony, Salvation, uh, my printer drivers, um, the Quickie hand scanner. Um, oh, yeah, also, I've got the thing. ROMs. Yeah, I've also got the ROMs for uh, InnerDrive and all the native drivers for that. Focus Drive and InnerDrive. Yeah, Neuromancer is one of my favorite games, actually, so I would love to see the source code for that. Well, I was the one who wrote that, so... <laughs> That's why you're one of my favorite authors. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's amazing. I, I, we're sitting here talking, and you're listing off these titles, and I'm you know, having these flashes of memories in my head of what wonderful games they were and these great times that I had playing them. And and sometimes I forget that, oh, yeah, Burger Becky did that, and she did this too, and, and all this awesome stuff. So it's it's uh, really great to, to hear you putting this stuff out there again and, and being involved with uh, the community. Although I will have to say right now, I've already approached uh, EA Legal, and they gave me a big fat no when it came to SimCity. <laughs> so shot that, they shot it. Ooh. Yep. <laughs> and in other games that I'm pretty certain I'm going to get a big fat no on is Crystal Quest, because they're actually developing a, a remade version of Crystal Quest. So they okay. really don't want the source code to a game that they're currently getting ready to market again out there. So you have uh, the sort of unique distinction of having written uh, the first and last 2GS game ever. So you sort of saw the entire run of the, the knowledge of how to program this machine evolve over time. Uh, you know, we recently had an interview with John Brooks of Rastan fame. And I wonder, uh, sort of, did you see uh, these sort of more advanced techniques kind of come into the community as, as the 2GS kind of went through its lifespan? Oh, well, hell, I kind of invented half of them, uh, <laughs> such as like N key rollover on the keyboard. Um, I was the one who came up with that. Um, hmm. I did that for Out of This World and Wolfenstein 3D. Um, it's where I actually came up with a technique where I uploaded code into the ADB controller so I can actually get ADB events raw from the mouse and keyboard so I can detect more than one key uh, being played um, you know, being pressed at the same time hmm. because you know, I wanted to simulate a joypad and you couldn't really do it with just reading the keyboard events. So I figured that one out. Then there was a PEA instruction trick where you shadowed the video memory so you actually could move it up to bank zero for the super high res. Mm -hmm. And then using yeah. PEA, you can actually copy one buffer to another with only six cycles per word. Um, right, and then right. I had also figured out a timing where you could only do 13 in a row, then you had to insert a no-op because it actually, th there was a difference in timing between the 1 megahertz bus and the 2.6 megahertz bus, and that actually got mm -hmm. you back in sync. And then there was a trick I used, this is back before the 2GS, where I actually could read an entire disc track in one revolution. Um, so that made it so that I actually tricked it, which I read all the nibbles in one track, then I told the motor to move head while it was moving the head. That's when I decoded the nibbles. And then I went back so that it as physically as fast as it could to read the track one revolution, move the head, and I was then it read the whole disc. And that's how I loaded a mind shadow, tracer sanction, uh borrowed time. That's how they booted. That's that's really remarkable. So uh have you sort of found any kind of new tricks now that you're going back and looking at some of the source code and porting it to modern machines again? Have you sort of, is there stuff you'd forgotten about? Uh, 
yeah, some things I kind of forgot was uploading stuff in the ADB bus. I remember having to learn ADB protocol, but I completely forgot why I learned ADB <laughs> protocol. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I remember that dude you had to pull the line, and then there's a fate, you know, a there was a, a, a sell time and it was 30% high, 60%, 60% low was a zero bit and 66% high, 33% low was a one bit. And I'm like, but why do I know this? <laughs> and then when I looked at my code for uh, Out of This World, like, oh yeah, that's why I had to learn that. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. So, uh, well, let's talk about some of your more modern stuff now. So you're working on this uh, Bard's Tale project. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about that? How did that get started and where is that at now? Well, it got started by the fact that uh, a company called In Exile uh, acquired the rights to Bard's Tale. And they went ahead and announced a few months back that they're going to do a Kickstarter for Bard's Tale 4. And, of course, I was immediately approached by all the fans asking, so am I involved? And I had to tell them, no, because that's the first news I've heard of it, too. Well, they started their Kickstarter. And, again, I get even more people asking me, are you involved? And I said, well, fine. So I went in and privately contacted um, In Exile and said, so uh, you do know I'm the creator of Bards 3, but they said they had everything covered. But... On the Kickstarter page, people were asking, hey, are you going to re-release the original trilogy? And then that's when I brought up the fact that I still have the source of the original trilogy, and I still have um, everything for it. Well, one thing led to another, and I entered into an agreement where I'm doing a remastering of the original trilogy based on the original source code. And I've got it up and running now. Um, I've been playing the game, and I hope to have within, in fact, almost certainly... By the end of this month, August, I should have uh, prototypes already out in people's hands so they'll be able to play the game and playtest it from beginning to end. But it's running natively on the Mac and PC, and it's all rewritten in C++, but the C++ was, in many cases, just translated from um, a 65816 assembly. And of course, I recoded it so it becomes more of a C program, not <laughs> and it's not literally 65816 assembly. But, uh, you know, I looked, you know, I wrote the code, so I know what the algorithms did. So I said, oh, I know what this function does. This is what it looks like in C. I know what this function does. This is what it does in C. So I've been, you know, I'm now once again back to um, mastering my 65816 assembly. It didn't take me long to get back into a groove. <laughs> it's like riding a bike. Never forget it how. Pretty much was like riding a bike. Are you using the same um, art assets and music and things like that, or is that being redone as well? Uh, right now, it's all the same art assets and the music. I, you know, the contract is such that I don't have any budget to hire an artist to redo that. Now, granted that if the game does really well, and so forth, and or there's a, a fan requirement, you know, saying, hey, you know, if you if you gave me a redrawn background, well, I'll just swap it in. It's not that hard. Uh, it's not like back in the 2GS where in, when I was creating art for it in addition to having to fit it in memory i also had to deal with you know limited palettes like in bard's tale the background image had to be drawn only in four colors black white light gray dark gray because i had to reserve other ranges of color in the palette to put for the three for the art another piece of the palette had to go for the uh, spell icons i mean you really had to plan out where everything goes whereas now in the remake it's like Pallet, schmallet, just put it anywhere. <laughs> so it makes it a lot oh. easier. 
So honestly, I think that's great because I mean, I want to play the remakes with the the 2GS graphics. Uh, I think that's more fun, honestly, than <laughs> doing something more modern. Mm-hmm. Neuromancer is is um, Quinn's favorite Apple II game, but Wasteland is my favorite Apple II game, uh-huh. and I know you you worked extensively on that. Did you were you involved at all with the uh, Wasteland Two? Nope, not involved at all with Wasteland okay. Two. It's one of the things where uh, you know that. If things work out well, who knows? I may do a remastering of Wasteland 2. Now, granted, NXL did do a remastering of the original Wasteland 1, but they did it in a really strange way where they took the original game binaries, ran it with DOSBox, and then they kind of patched it on the fly. Whereas for me, I just take the source code and just make a really native modern version. (laughs) You know, one that doesn't require you to have uh, backups of your character discs. Uh, speaking of which, did you find any of your old uh, characters when you were digging up the Bard's Tale source? No, I, I didn't find all my characters. I, I mean, if, my characters have since moved on. I mean, I imported them to other games. I put them all into Dragon Wars, and then I played Dragon Wars. And since ah, then, cool. um, you know, went on to other games. And so forth. I, I don't know where I even have my old character discs from Dragon Wars, but the thing goes is that Dragon Wars also is one of those games that's on the list of games I'll be remastering. Mm, excellent. Yeah, I would love to see that as well. Mm-hmm. At least the the thing with Dragon Wars is the source code to that is like I just have to say, huh, who do I need to talk to get permission for releasing the source code? Hey Becky, can I get permission to get release the source code to Dragon Wars? I don't know. <laughs> What's in it for me? <laughs> <laughs> it does help but that I you know I don't have anybody I need to fight with on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Now you've um, you've obviously been hard at work updating a lot of these these old older games. Are we going to see any uh, new, call it pure eight bit or sixteen bit Apple II games or or products coming from you from you anytime soon? Uh, that really depends on whether or not I actually have free time. See, the thing is that most of these remakes and stuff I'm doing right now that are on modern systems, I actually have a stamp. You know, I stand to make at least a little bit of money, like rent. I know doing anything on the classic games is ones where that if I get five bucks, I'll be lucky. But it's you know more for a labor of love. I mean, it's one of those things where never say never, but it's more like for me, I think what will happen is that when it comes time for me to say retire and I'm in a position where I don't need to work for a living, then I could devote my time doing stuff like, hey, maybe I should fix um, stuff on the Apple II or hell, I might. And one of my uh, little on my to-do list is write cookie clicker for the Apple II. It's like, there's no reason why that game can't be on an Apple II in its glory. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah, Dagan Brock said the same thing about uh, Flappy Bird, <laughs> and he made an awesome uh, double O-Res version of it. Yep. Well, what's funny is Dragon Wars was double O-Res. I'm sorry, double high-res. So you take it back mm-hmm. to double high-res, uh, which was, you know, one of the things I, I took a risk on when I did that back in uh, the day was... Um, everybody was still doing saying do standard high res, and so it's like you know Apple II's really aren't that popular anymore, and Apple IIs and two Cs and two Gs's all run the game, so give me the art in double high res, and uh, it sold really well. I mean, uh, the, the Trailblazer really was a game called Airheart because that was the one I remember mm-hmm. from Rotorbun was the first game that required double high res to run, and yeah, that, that got was, me. That was saying, a beautiful well, game. That's, Yep, I said, if that could sell on the Apple II in decent numbers, then sure enough, I'm going to give you an RPG in it. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think we all remember Dragon Wars is probably being the best looking RPG, honestly, on the eight bits. And uh, yeah, it was it was so great to see because yeah, Double High Res I think was really underused, probably just because of the difficulty of programming it. Uh, so any time we got to see it, uh, it was an easy sale for me. Yeah, uh, trust me that there was there's challenging. I mean, the very fact that uh, the on the Apple II you had seven bit bytes for graphics. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on, was yeah. I know it's one <laughs> chip, but you just made lives millions of programmers more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. He's the source of a lot of gray hairs, I think, among the programmers of his hardware. Oh yeah, I mean, the very fact that there's no interrupts at all in the baseline machine just made lots of happiness, joy right there. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, uh, Mike, any other questions for Burger Becky? Yeah, at one point you were part of the uh, group of people that looked at what what turned out to be uh, the non-happening of AppleWorks GS 2.0. Uh-huh. Well, um, there really isn't much to say. Uh, there was a – I forgot who it was that actually got the copy of the source code to Clarisworks or AppleWorks for the to 2GS. And I got a copy of the source code. And I still have it in my archives. I actually found it. But the trouble was is that nobody then contacted me anymore. I then said, and I even sent email messages and stuff saying, hey, are we doing this or not? And they, like, I got crickets. And so at that point, I then said, well, if nobody's going to be heading this project or figure out what we're going to do, um, well, then I'll just put the source code away. One thing I do remember quite clearly was that in order to build AppleWorks, you had to do it under on the Mac using these a modified version of APW and their, their tools, only because the, they, the code source code was so huge, and it took something like about half an hour to build. And one of the biggest problems is that when they wrote AppleWorks, they used a strange macro uh, language. So it kind of looked like Pascal when you looked at the source, but it really boils down to assembly language. And of course, my thought was like, why did they do this? And the macros <laughs> are so complicated that it kind of reminds me these days of template programming on C++ where you... Oh, yes. Yeah, while it may make the code easier to write somewhat, it, it makes the compiler do so much work that... Um, your compile times are so long. That's one reason why I see programmers bitch about, oh, it takes me an hour and a half to compile my code, whereas I don't use any of that shit. And like Space Ace, uh, by the time I hit return, everything is built, including the data of the game. And I'm like, that's the way it should be done. Heck, Bard's Tale right now for the two uh, for the PC, the source code it builds at about I'd say one second, and that's all the source code, all the C plus plus. I say, clean. Hit build, done. And it's like, well, you know, don't bog down the compiler. Well, AppWorks was like that. They had all these templates and macros and things. And the very fact that it took easily half an hour to a full hour, depending on how fast your Mac ran, to build this, that would explain to me, it's like, no wonder why no one wants to touch this program or, or make modifications to it. It's just so convoluted and huge. But other than that, I really hadn't heard anything more as, as to whatever happened. I mean, maybe you can enlighten me. Did uh, they lose the rights to it or did um, Claris have cold feet or what? I heard pretty much 
uh, what you told me, but from some people, I guess, who are more bitter about it, um, just that AppleWorks GS was a huge mess and, and not worth, you know, you would, it would make more sense to simply start over from scratch to write 2.0. And at that point, 2GS development was no longer a thing that made money. And so nobody, nobody went down that road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense because, I mean, back at the time, because for one, if it made money, then Claris would have, uh, you know, actually funded the development of uh, AppleWorks 2.0 or something like that. But back then, it was like, you know, it was more of a hobby and they might have sold, I don't know, maybe a thousand copies, which still is respectable. But, you know, when you think about it, if you sell a thousand copies at $100 a piece, that's $100,000, but that only funds like a couple of programmers for a year. And that's, of course, assuming that these people are, you know, doing this more of a labor of love than um, actual living on that. Uh, because that's, there's no money for marketing and sales and stuff like that. It's just pure dev. And at the same time, is that everybody had to spend a lot of money on buying the highest end Mac you could possibly purchase only to, in order to tolerate those build times. <laughs> now, of course, granted, if I pull up the source code to Clarisworks or Appleworks, I probably could get it to build on a modern machine in about, I know, two or three minutes. But still, that would have to take time to create an assembler that mimicked the APW assembler that they used. And that's that in and of itself is a project. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it might have been. <laughs> So um, I, I'm sure you get asked this a lot, and maybe this is an easy question, maybe not. But looking back over the years, I, I see that you've worked on like 250 games or something like that, which is like, Easily. wow. But, wow. Yeah, I mean, it blows my mind. Are, are there any, do you have like a favorite memory or, or a favorite project that you worked on? I think one of my most favorite projects really was Out of This World. Because okay. the very con concept of Out of This World was more of a dare. When Interplay was first shown out of this world by Eric Chahi, the game was written hand-tuned to the Amiga. And he wrote the game in 68,000 assembly using an interpreted language that he wrote the compiler in, in Amiga Basic. So it generated, it's all Amiga-centric, but the real thing about it was he used the Amiga hardware to its fullest. So we got the game, we started distributing it for the Amiga, we ported it to the PC um, and then ported it to Atari ST. And the game was selling well, but I look at the game graphics and I says, you know what, I think I could do that on my 2GS. And Brian Fargo uh, was saying, no, it's impossible. You cannot do that <laughs> game on the 2GS and definitely not on the Super Nintendo. And I said, okay. So I went over, grabbed a copy of the source, locked myself in my office for about two weeks, and then I came up with a proof of concept that ran. I, I literally didn't. It just worked day and night, converting the sixty-eight thousand into hand-tuned sixty-five-eight sixteen assembly. And in a couple of weeks, I had a prototype. The game only ran about five frames per second. You know, it was really slow, but it ran, <laughs> and it was on my two GS. And brought Fargo in and he brought a bunch of other people in and they were just looking at this just slack jawed going like you got this running on the 2GS it's like yep here it is you play it and they said okay let's do a Super Nintendo version <laughs> so I then spent another uh, month or two optimizing the game engine 
you on the Apple 2GS. So I got the frame rate up to around 15 frames per second on a 2GS. And then with that, I then redid the graphic routines for the Super Nintendo. And I pulled out a lot of tricks, which is in and of itself could be the topic of a talk here. But I did so many little graphic tricks and optimization tricks in 65.816 in order to get that game to run at, I think our target rate was 20 frames per second. And that was with no hardware assist, no extra thing on the cartridge. It was a slow ROM, everything, but I still got it to run. And with that, people were like, holy crap, out of this world on a Super Nintendo? And built the game all on my Apple IIGS, gave them the ROM images, and they sent it off to Nintendo, who in turn said, like, holy crap, what Super FX chip do you need? It's like, none. <laughs> and, uh, and there are still people to this day that they say, oh, yeah, I played, uh, you know, out of this world, one of those Super FX chip games. And I was like, that, there was no Super FX chip in that game. <laughs> and they still look at me funny, like, that's impossible. You couldn't do polygons on a Super Nintendo. It says, just look at the code of Out of This World. Yes, you can. <laughs> that's amazing. I actually didn't realize it wasn't a Super FX game either. <laughs> you just nope, said it's that. all software. There's wow. no Super FX chip in there at all. For any of our listeners who may not know, that the Super FX chip was a floating point uh, accelerator that was driving uh, the, a lot of the 3D uh, games on the Super Nintendo, like uh, most famously Star Fox uh, and some of those. Uh, you could always tell those carts because they had a couple extra pins on the connector. So uh, that's a, a good way to to, uh, to see which games were using it. Uh, so that's that's amazing that you did it without that. Yep. And then what's funny was that because I did a Super Nintendo version, I then actually finished the 2GS version. I went in, finished it, bit credits, put everything in there, says here it is, the 2GS version of the game. Well, Interplay wasn't interested in releasing the game because at that time the 2GS market was pretty much dead. Well, there was a company called the Big Red Computer Club that was buying up the rights to Apple 2GS games and redistributing them. So I then said, hey, do you want to ship you know, Big Red Computer Club? Do you want to sell uh, out of this world? And they're going like, yeah. I made the introductions. They call up and Interplay is saying, well, we really can't sell you the rights to the game because the way the contract is, but we could press the game. But however, though, we have to do a minimum pressing. And Fargo was more like saying, like, screw you guys. Here, you got a minimum order of 1,000 copies, and we charge $25 wholesale for a copy. And Big Red Computer Club said, okay, here's a check for $25,000. And Brian was like, whoa, okay, fine. Uh, we'll press 1,000 copies. So we did. It's 1,000 copies using Interplay packaging and everything. Mailed them off to Big Red Computer Club, and Brian was thinking, like, yeah, hey, that's the easiest $25,000 i have ever made, to, you know, so much <laughs> suckers. And a few months later, they reordered. Wow. He, and, and Fargo was, actually came up to me and says, like, I just got a reorder for Out of This World. I never thought they were going to sell 10 copies, let alone <laughs> thousands. And sure enough, we sent another 1,000 copies off to Big Red Computer club which i understand they eventually did sell it out as well and but they didn't do another reorder because that's when they realized sales are such that it wasn't worrying worth it for another reorder but two thousand people eventually purchased a copy of out of this world for their 2gs which made me the, the last 2gs commercial game out there you're well known for for putting uh easter eggs in your games oh yeah uh do you still get people coming up to you and say hey i found this in this game or or think that they found some mistake 
Uh, not recently, but there are people who've been asking me saying like, so what's this picture of you getting your head chopped off? I found it <laughs> when I was going through the data files or something. So yeah, it's an Easter egg. <laughs> are there any out there that to your knowledge haven't been discovered yet? Oh no, because after the game's been out for a year, I just leak it. I just say, oh, yeah, okay. this here it is. Like uh, a good example is in Bard's Tale. Um, if you go to the Temple of the Mad God, and it says, like, what is the name of the Mad God? And you're supposed to say Tarjan. But if you say uh, Burger, the temple priests would go like, you have uttered the most unspeakable word, prepare <laughs> to die. And then this massive combat comes out. And, of course, the intent was to murder you mercilessly. <laughs> but if you manage to have a party strong enough to survive, the temple priest says, like, oh, Let's try that again. And they give you an even worse uh, <laughs> set of monsters to come after you. And if you manage to survive that, they said, okay, well, fine. Just don't say that again. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. Well, um, thank you very much, Becky, for taking some time and um, chatting with us. It's been a lot of fun. Hey, it's been wonderful. And thank you for having me on your show. This is Mark Simonson, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. All right. Well, again, that was a great interview uh, with Burger Becky, who had, a, as we understand, had a great time at Kansas Fest. I wasn't there to see it, but it uh, looks like from, from everything she said and from what she posted online, it was a, uh, she had a lot of fun and everybody had a lot of fun meeting her. And, and she's been really productive with uh, Apple II stuff lately, and that's just been awesome to see. But we do have some news that we should talk about, don't we, Quinn? We sure do. Why don't we roll on into that? It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. All right, I think this first item is mine. Uh, it's, uh, I guess, the obligatory entry in this month's Halt and Catch Fire segment. I'm always looking for Apple IIs, as I'm sure most of our listeners are in that show. And I uh, finally spotted one, uh, although it was very uh, brief and fleeting, uh, which I guess are two words that mean the same thing. Uh, so there was an Apple II under a dust cover in the background of one of those scenes. There's this scene where Gordon is uh, sneaking around uh, an associate's garage, and he peeks in through the uh, window of the garage, and there is uh, very distinctively an Apple II under a dust cover on a pile of stuff on a table in this garage. You can uh, just sort of barely make out the corner of it, but it's very definitely an Apple II uh, keyboard. It's uh, 35 minutes in, I, I believe in the final episode of uh, this season or the second final, one of the one of those last two episodes. Uh, unfortunately, he then in the next scene goes into that garage and takes the cover off and whatever Apple II it was is gone. So uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how that Apple II managed to sneak in there. Maybe there's a funny story there, like the prop, uh, the set dressers put it in there because they had it in their stock of old computers. And then someone was like, oh, gosh, there's an Apple logo on this. We don't want to get sued or I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's definitely there. And then it's gone just like that. Uh, I believe it was uh, an Apple II Plus uh, because it was definitely not, uh, it's definitely an older style keyboard, but it didn't have the raised power light or anything like that. So I would say it was probably an Apple II Plus. Uh, but uh, there you go. There's your frame by frame dissection of Halton Catch Fire for this month. Yeah, and, and the season is over, and I think you can watch the whole thing online right now at amc.com, and then it'll, I think it's only up there for a week or two or maybe a month, and then it'll go away, and it'll come back right before next season when they, you know, they'll they do the marathon just to 
to uh, try and get more viewers and remind you what you missed. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to say Boo Atari because it's an, it's a, it's all Commodores that they use, but I think it's appropriate to say Boo Atari anyway. Fair enough. Yep, and Boo Commodore. That's right. Our friend uh, Plumman has been very busy lately. He has been selling. Mm, you know, he's been sure. cl- he's been cloning stuff and uh, like crazy and selling it on eBay. This first item, uh, and we mentioned it in the news section instead of in the eBay one because we don't talk about eBay, uh, and two because we like Plumman, and so we're going to talk about it here. Um, <laughs> he's selling these. This uh, it's applied. It's the applied engineering D clock module for the Apple IIc. It's a clone. There's a buy it now for $66, and it looks like the shipping is, at least to me, is is free from Hungary, so that's pretty awesome. It is indeed. Uh, Bulgaria, I think, actually, isn't it? Oh, yep, you're right. <laughs> um, boy, ignorant American here, folks. Anyway, if you don't know what the D-Clock <laughs> is, <laughs> it is a clock option for the RAM Express and the Apple IIc's memory expansion card or compatibles. Um, the D-Clock enables you to, uh, you can support applications that uh, use the Prodos uh, time clock functions. Uh, you can add the current time and date to your ProDOS files, and you can play and then any any application like AppleWorks or I think maybe even the older Apple Writer uh, will pull a clock if it knows it's there for the date and time and display it on screen as you're working. And you can set your uh, current date and time in Apple like for AppleWorks database categories and things like that with a single keystroke. He's uh, also sending along a copy of the user manual, uh, but you'll have to buy your own watch battery for it. Very cool. Yeah, his products are just, he's just making all of us hardware tinkerers look bad. He just, he's cranking them out at this furious rate and they all look fantastic. He does these white PCBs that are really distinctive and really nice. Uh, the designs, yeah, they all look great and they're all available. You know, we've got lots of folks, myself included, who are always uh, developing things and talking about maybe having them ready someday. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, good old Plumman just, uh, he puts his PCBs where his mouth is. So uh, good on you. He will be getting more of my money shortly. Yeah, and uh, I guess we should just go ahead and talk about his next item. This is the uh, Ramworks 3 clone. He announced on Facebook in the Apple II enthusiast group back on the 29th of, J- of July that he now has the RamWorks 3 um, RAM card clone ready for uh, ready for purchase, or or he's close, and it's going to have the uh, the VGA extension, which is really cool, because again we're we're trying to get away from some of these older weirdo funny funky signal Apple uh, Apple made monitors and things like that, and just having RGB I think on your Apple II is kind of cool. I don't know that you get that much from it for for an, for an 8-bit. Like so, the Apple III has the was built with a digital XRGB output, and, and so they, they some of the what little software there was 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 written to um, specifically look really great on an, uh, an RGB screen. So I don't know if you're getting buying a whole lot with uh, with this RGB card. Do you know anything about that? You just had to sneak the Apple III in there, didn't you? Oh, the Apple III. Oh, the software all fancy schmancy. Oh. <laughs> I have all six Apple made software packages. Thank you. They're all lined up in a row. Uh, it's, just, it's a very short they fit, on, they fit on half a bookshelf. <laughs> That's right. Small, small bookshelf. 
So I don't actually know a lot about this uh, VGA add-on for uh, uh, that he's also got. I'm really interested in it. I assume uh, the reason it's an add-on for the Ramworks card, you know, it sounds like a bit of an odd thing. I assume the reason for that is, well, A, so it doesn't take up a slot, and B, because obviously a RAM card has access to, the, the you know, the address of data buses. And my understanding is that the way these devices work is they just scan the video portions of, uh, of the Apple II memory space and just display whatever's there. Um, so I'm assuming his VGA does that, so it would just function as a standard video um, output, so you wouldn't need special software or anything to take advantage of it, uh, like you would on some other uh, types of devices, like the Second Sight, uh, which has you know some advanced modes that are uh, require special software. Um, so that yeah, I'm not sh for sure about that because I haven't actually used one, but that's my understanding of it. Well, applied engineering uh, on the RamWorks three, I think towards the. End of the run, maybe, uh, actually did make, it was like a two meg, I think two or three meg expansion board that could also do uh, a VGA output. Um, and so I'm, I assume this is just a, this is a clone of that. And I know oh, that okay. uh, the, the guys over at uh, Ultimate Micro, is that what they're called? Did I get that right? Uh, yes. They're also, they're also, <laughs> they're also working on a clone uh, of this. First, you know, three meg is great. In a 2E, if you're you know doing spreadsheets or databases on AppleWorks, things like that, the original cards don't show up very much on eBay, and so they tend to go for a whole lot of money when they do. So it's nice to have this available again if you've been looking for a way to add tons and tons of memory to your Apple 2E. Yeah, and honestly, it would be worth it just for the VGA output, just to, as a way to attach that, because uh, you know with Nishida Radio uh, back in retirement. The uh, the options for VGA output for the uh, 8 bits are slim once again. So uh, if this functions as I think it does, that would be a great option for ditching the giant heavy CRTs. I agree. Now he's also posted something else um, on in the the enthusiasts group here, and it looks like this is a one meg RAM expansion plus a clock plug-in for is this what for the 2c i don't know what this is for is this yeah is this the d clock it, it is. Is, did, I, did i just it, talk about this no i this this is different uh this is i believe a clone of like the zram uh board oh, wow, okay uh with the clock built in so it, it doesn't look like much because there's only like one chip on this thing uh but it's actually like a megabyte of ram uh all in one little tiny chip uh with the clock in there as well uh, I think it's got two or three chips on it or something, but then there's the battery for the clock as well. So yeah, it's a very unassuming wow. looking board, but yeah, my understanding is that it's a clone of uh, whatever it was, the, the ZRAM or the ZRAM Ultra that had the RAM and the ability to add the D-Clock to it. Uh, it does not have the uh, Z80, which uh, I understand was an option on some version of that board. Um, so you're not going to yeah, be so running this... CPM with this. But uh, uh, yeah, this is fantastic because, again, this is one of those devices where they go for crazy money on eBay and everybody wants them. This would be the ZRAM 2, I think. Um, mm, there you go. Then okay. with, with if it doesn't have the, Z, the Z80 chip, I think the only difference between the either the two and the three or the ultra or whatever des the final designator that they were using is that one of them has the Z80 chip, the other one doesn't. So if you're not running CPM, you don't really need it anyway. There, of course, you know, people like me, I just, you know, we have to have the latest and greatest and it's got to be better than, than Sean Fahey's, you know? So um, <laughs> <laughs> even if I don't need it, it's better than his and that's what matters. It's, it's kind of a shame um, that applied engineering did a lot of the the really best hardware stuff that they put out came so late in the in the life of the Apple II that they ended up going out of 
business, not a lot of it got bought. And so now it's hard to find some of it. And it's really expensive. You know, it's, it's great that finally these guys are out there, um, ultra ultimate micro and Plumman are cloning the stuff and making it available again. For sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, the applied engineering was never a huge company. Uh, and a lot of this, a lot of these products were pretty niche. And as you say, it was towards the end of the company when the really great stuff came out. So a lot of it, they just didn't make very many of them. Uh, the market was small and the company just didn't have a chance to make a lot of them. Uh, so they're rare. Uh, yeah, I love the stuff. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if these, these guys are reverse engineering those existing AE products or if they're just designing their own that does the same thing. But either way, uh, we just have an embarrassment of riches uh, on this stuff uh, enough to make any uh, hardware uh, side of uh, the other retro computers uh, look bad for sure. I believe a lot of applied engineering's designs and their, you know, the source code and, and stuff like that no one knows where it is anymore, which makes mm -hmm. the stuff hard to clone. Um, mm -hmm. And that's been kind of one of the, you know, the rumors of some guy in, in Arizona out in a trailer in the middle of the desert, you know, guarded by a pack of wild dogs that might have something or know somebody who, <laughs> whose grandfather buried it out in the, and you know, in the Sahara or something like that. But um, because that stuff all went away and no, I guess nobody, either nobody thought to hang on to it or nobody's, uh, nobody ever stepped up and said, "Hey, we've got all this stuff." Uh, up until now, it's been anything that's got those, you know, the the, the custom chips. It's been really difficult to clone. But it, you know, finally, it seems like somebody figured out either a way around that, or maybe some source code or or some documents were were located. Yeah, I suspect uh, most of this stuff just honestly really isn't that complicated. You know, the RAM cards and the clocks and stuff. Uh, it's you know mostly off the shelf chips and. Uh, you know, doing stuff, just sort of digging through the, the technical reference manuals for the machines to figure out where all the address lines are and stuff. So, you know, uh, I think the, the real coup de grace is, the, is of course, the Transwarped uh, GS. Uh, cloning that was just a masterpiece. So I got to think if, uh, you know, if, if Ultima Micro can clone that, then they can clone anything, frankly. <laughs> they, uh, they definitely started at the high end of the difficulty curve uh, with that product. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think, uh, but yeah, it's just so amazing. I never would have guessed here we are some 30 odd years later, and uh, I can basically buy all those AE products that I used to drool over in the backs of the magazines. Yeah, I will say I'm going to miss the uh, pink applied engineering uh, disk envelopes. That's <laughs> the coolest. Or I guess the labels were pink. I don't remember if the... Something, something was pink. A lot of pink in there. Yeah. So speaking of cool old stuff that uh, we wish we could have had, and maybe now we can, uh, Mike, there's some stuff going on with Mr. Westerfield over at the Biteworks. Is that right? Right. So without being, uh, without making any kind of uh, judgment or casting aspersions on anyone anywhere, uh, some people in the community have reported having uh, to wait perhaps longer than they like to get a hold of uh, certain products that they buy. And one of those has been uh, Mike Westerfield's uh, Opus 2 software. It was all available sort of. Um, but like I said, I guess people were having trouble getting a hold of it. And so Mike caught wind of this and, and, uh, put out feelers on Facebook to determine whether it would be worth his time and energy to perhaps find another distributor and lower the cost a little bit. Because I think the, the the big one that everybody seems to want is Opus 2, which I think is all of their software. And then there's there's a, another version or a, a deluxe pack or whatever that also has all the source code. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, these these Opus packages are uh, like Orca C, Orca M, uh, Orca Pascal, and uh, the Orca Shell, and just sort of in various combinations and with or without source code. 
right? If you're new to the community, just to give you an idea, if you have ever done or will ever do any development on any version of an 8-bit Apple II computer, you're probably going to use or at least come across uh, some of Mike's amazing products at, at one point or another. He uh, he really made it a lot easier to uh, to get the power of development into the hands of the people who wanted to do that rather than just the big companies and, and Apple. Not that, not that Apple went out of their way to make it difficult or anything, but Mike certainly made it accessible. Yeah, especially on the 2GS, you know, the Orca C and Orca M uh, package was really a tour de force for software development. I used to boot my machine uh, into Orca Shell, and uh, it was just I used it exclusively that way. Uh, it's it's really that good. I reached out to Mike maybe a week, week and a half ago about this, expressing my interest in being able to buy that again. Uh, and he said that at the time it wasn't available yet. He was still trying to to settle on another digital distributor. But I'm seeing here in the show notes, Quinn, that maybe it's now available. Well, yeah. So uh, what uh, I saw come across A2 Central uh, was that he was trying to open source the uh, uh, Orca C compiler, uh, particularly, possibly some of the other stuff as well. But I think he was going to start with Orca C. And he put it up on GitHub. And then moments later, it was gone again. <laughs> so if you were oh, one of the okay. lucky few who grabbed it while it was there, good on you. Because he, uh, my understanding is he wants to get the source code out there for people to use and improve upon. But there was some details of the GitHub license, I guess, that were not uh, compatible with what he was, what he's trying to do here. So I don't know the details, but uh, that's why it was pulled down again. So, uh, but he has also said more recently that if you want to buy the stuff, you can buy it direct from him. Uh, just send him an email uh, at support at biteworks.us, and we'll have that uh, link in the show notes as well. Uh, I don't know what the latest is with Cinecom and if, if you can still purchase it through them or not, but uh, you can definitely buy it uh, direct from Mike via email. Cinecom a while ago decided to offer digital downloads on some of the purchases that you make, and I believe that this was one of the items where you could actually just pay and download it. So if you didn't want it sent, if you didn't need the actual printed out manuals or, or a disc, you could do it yourself, and that was an option. It's a whole still, I think, murky, um, confusing situation that uh, I don't know that we really want to get too deep into here, but it will be nice to to have this legitimately available again from Mike himself. And if you don't want to dip your toes in that water, you don't have to. All right. Well, speaking of old software being rebooted, Mike, uh, what uh, what's going on with your former illustrious co-host, Mr. Gagney? Ah, well, Mr. Gagney has been busy, of course, uh, in his absence from OpenApple between, you know, producing JuiceJS and uh, his podcast. He also runs the GameBits blog and does a lot of really great stuff for the community. And, and most recently, or at least recently, he played his way. He, he does a Let's Play on uh, YouTube for various games. Not all of them, I think, are necessarily Apple II specific. In fact, I don't know if any of those are. I know he does a lot of console gaming. But he did a playthrough of the, the new King's Quest game. And this is on the PlayStation 4. But if you're a King's Quest fan or if you listened to our show last month and you liked what Lane was saying about Sierra, you can watch Ken play this and decide if you want to go buy the game yourself. Yeah, that's pretty uh, pretty good timing, actually. I tells you how out of the loop I am. I didn't even know King's Quest uh, had been rebooted. So that's kind of neat. I uh, watched uh, this video and it looks like a pretty good game if you're into the modern stuff. I haven't dipped my toe into the King's Quest waters in a long time. And with all the other stuff that's coming out, I don't know that I 
will that it's in my my immediate plans but you know if if i happen to figure out how to live forever yeah i'll probably get to it someday well, and I learned uh, from over the, the fine folks over at Retro Computing Roundtable that uh, Ken also has a, uh, a new fragrance uh, that he's working on. Yes, it's uh, Retro by Gagne. Oh, my God. So uh, looking forward to that. Mm. Uh, all right. So I actually have my, own King's Quest. <laughs> I have my own King's Quest uh, story, actually. Uh, so one of the things I loved about King's Quest was that it was a double high-res game, and uh, there was uh, tragically few of those on the 8-bit, because you could really do, can, really can do some very nice-looking games on the, on the 8-bits with double high-res. And uh, however, when I, that game came out when I was very young and didn't really understand the difference between the enhanced 2E and the 2+, and... Uh, I thought, you know, like many consumers did, I'm sure at the time, that it was just the memory was only the, the only difference. So I had a 2 Plus, and I had a RAM Factor card in it, a great big old RAM Factor, had 512K on it. And, uh, you know, in my naive little uh, 10-year-old mind, I thought that was the same thing as an Apple IIe with 128K. And it was even better because I had more of the KBs. And uh, so I got, <laughs> uh, I begged, yes, so I begged and begged and begged for King's Quest for uh, Christmas that, that year. And uh, it was under the tree and I was just, my mind was exploding from excitement. And of course it didn't run. So uh, I was very, very sad little Quinn that year. Um, but uh, was able to play it years later when we got a, a Laser 128. And actually the RAM Factor found new life, uh, as I have talked about on the show, actually. The uh, Laser 128EX has an unpopulated equivalent to the ZRAM built into it. Uh, I'm not, I don't think a lot of people know that. So you can take the, uh, the plastic shell apart, and inside there, there's just a bunch of chip sockets. And you can plug in the chips. And again, in my naivete, I didn't even know that RAM chips come in different kinds and different speeds. And maybe I should check if these are the right ones. But I just <laughs> ripped them off my RAM factor and jammed them into these sockets in my inside my 128. Uh, and it worked great. Uh, I used it as a great big RAM disk for Protoss and uh, uh, pirated uh, many a game onto it. It was great. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was great for uh, downloading from BBSs because you could, uh, you know, download uh, really large files uh, onto it. So, which was often something you needed to do with BBSs. Well, and we've talked about Bill Buckle's software before on the show, and he's actually doing a whole lot of that, uh, playing around with a double high res and really pushing it to its limits. Uh, in, in terms not only of what you can do on your old machine, but in, is, you know, like creating a, an image and transferring it to your modern desktop easily or going back the other way easily. He's got a lot of really great utilities. And we'll have a, a link to the show notes to, to his stuff. I think it's all freeware. And he's got some great write-ups uh, over on Compsys Apple II. And he, I think he still, I think he posts on, on the enthusiast group as well. But uh, if you've yeah, got a Facebook right. type, uh, I know it's all over there at CSA2. You can check that out. I believe, wasn't Double high res was like, a, it was a, an error, wasn't it? It was discovered by mistake. Is that right? Uh, no, it was, it was intentional. Um, but uh, it is a, a extremely challenging mode to program, which is why uh, it never got much use, I'm sure. Um, it was, it's similar to, it's similar to 80 column text in that every other column is in the other memory bank. So they basically, they map, you know, both 64K banks, the, the video RAM section of, the original 64K, they map both banks into the same space. And so to draw a horizontal line, you literally have to flip the uh, the memory back and forth. But the cool thing about it is that you can get all 16 low-res colors, uh, but on the high-res screen. 
Uh, and if you if you do it that way, there's a couple of different ways to do it. You can also do it in black and white, where you get quite quite high resolution. That's what things like Geost would do, is they would use double high res in black and white, and get a really nice high res uh, sharp uh, picture. Uh, but the games would use it with, and you can coerce it into generating 16 colors. Uh, but that limits your horizontal resolution to, I believe, 140. I believe it's only half of the um, high res screen because uh, you're using you know twice as many bits for the colors to get 16. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, it basically makes it equivalent roughly to like the high-res mode on the Commodore 64, uh, about the same resolution and color palette. So you can do some very, very nice looking games. Uh, once you get over that programming hurdle, uh, you need to do some very clever programming to, to sort of get stuff on the screen. But uh, uh, yep, it, uh, it could be done and lots of uh, companies did it. Uh, one thing to keep in mind if you're looking to buy an Apple IIe and you're, you're wanting to get Double high res capabilities, you got to make sure that you have the revision B motherboard. And that gets a little confusing with part numbers and things because Apple called two different versions of the board revision A or something like that. Um, so do a little research uh, and we'll have links to, to all this in the show notes, but uh, make sure that you buy the correct revision of the motherboard or the older Apple IIe's won't do double high res. The board that you're actually looking for is going to be, uh, the part number is 820-0064B. It's on the motherboard, I think, kind of along the back edge behind the slots. Or you can get the uh, the Platinum 2E. That one will also do it. Yeah, I think if I was going to get a 2E, uh, which I probably will at some point uh, to have fun with all the cards, I would uh, probably honestly get a 2E Platinum. Uh, I have a soft spot for them. I don't know why. I always thought they were really cool looking. You like the keypad, admit it. <laughs> yeah, I I guess I have fantasies of data entry. I don't know why, but some <laughs> keypad and, you know, I like the platinum color. And uh, I guess because we had them at our school sort of at the tail end uh, of the 8-bit era. And so that was kind of, it was the coolest one of, of all of them, I guess. So maybe that's why I like them. I think Apple was selling them for like 100 or 200 bucks at that point. So school bought them like crazy. <laughs> yeah, because they already I'm had sure. a huge a huge library of pirated soft, of pirated educational software. So the hardware was pretty cheap and they didn't have to pay 1500 bucks for a Mac. Uh, uh, only one of us, unfortunately, got to go to Kansas Fist this year. And it wasn't me. Hmm. So... Yes. So that is the elephant in the room, of course, is Kansas Fest. <laughs> this is our first uh, post-K-Fest show. And I'm amazed we've made it this far into the news without talking about it. Uh, it, was, hangover, it was amazing. Know? Nobody wants to talk about K-Fest for like a month after it happens. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's sort of the opposite, actually. You get back and uh, <laughs> there's all this traffic on the email thread and stuff. I always say that Kansas Fest kind of doesn't just end, it just sort of crossfades back into your normal <laughs> life. And uh, we're, we're in that phase now. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. This was my second K-Fest and lots of the same people, which is great. always great to see the familiar faces and tons of new people. There was, I think they said 76 or so, Whoa. or 73 or 76 attendees this year. Uh, it was the highest number since, yeah, 1996. Uh, really That's remarkable. Awesome. Uh, yeah, there was just people everywhere. Uh, the sessions were amazing. Uh, you know, uh, Burger Becky's keynote, like we talked about earlier in the show, was fantastic. Uh, you know, there was, uh, gosh, so many great sessions. I loved uh, Dave Schmeg's Plasma Talk. Uh, Ian Johnson was back with his Japanese support in the 2GS. That was really cool. Uh, the, you know, there was some awesome door games. Uh, Carrington Vanston won the uh, door game contest with his Choose Your Own Adventure that he built out of this massive array of index cards uh, that he stuck to his wall. Uh, that was a big hit. So uh, Hackfest was amazing this year. We had, I think, uh, 
was it eight entries and it was uh, I was uh, filled in as a judge uh, this year for Hackfest and it was incredibly hard to judge uh, I was uh, I was sort of pitching in uh, along with um, James Littlejohn and uh, Michael Mahone and yeah, we all had, we had a tough time with it because there was so many amazing entries uh, that uh, it was really hard to pick. So uh, yeah, Carrington Vanston ended up winning that as well. Uh, this was uh, the year of Carrington, apparently. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, Martin Hay just boy, uh, it was really hard to not give the victory to that. Uh, as 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 good as Carrington's entry was, uh, for anyone who didn't know. Uh, so we'll link to this in the show notes as well. That we have videos of all the Hackfest entries with a blurb explaining each of them. But uh, uh, so Carrington wrote a really cool sort of meta tic-tac-toe game that you sort of have to see to, to believe and it had sound and animation and music and it was just astonishingly polished and complete for having been written, you know, at uh, 3am and various evenings uh, throughout the week. And uh, Martin, but Martin Hay, yeah, basically wrote uh, his own ROM monitor, uh, like Apple II equivalent ROM monitor for the Apple III uh, with assembler and disassembler. Uh, that wasn't even what he set out to do. He just started doing something on the Apple III and realized how bad the monitor is on it and decided, well, I can fix that. And so he wrote his own <laughs> that lives entirely on sector zero of a floppy and boots instantly. And by that, I do mean instantly. It's uh, the video of that is amazing. Uh, you'll think you missed it. Um, so anyway, yeah, there was just so much, so much good stuff. Uh, I can't say enough amazing things about Kansas Fest. Uh, and uh, what is also very cool is that the uh, dates for next year have already uh, been announced. So you can go Ooh. plan that in your calendar right now. And in fact, of course, before saying that, I should have actually looked up what the dates are. <laughs> so I'm just going to uh, ham it up here while I quickly look this up. I assume you'll be coming next year, Mike. Um, we'll see. Uh, while while you're doing that, just real quick, you mentioned Martin Hay and his awesome Apple III um, assembler for the for the monitor because the Apple III Apple III you can pull up a, the monitor and you can see what's going on in memory, but there's no assembly. That you can't really. It's a lot. It's kind of of a, a really crippled version of what you find in the Apple II. So uh, Martin wrote this completely awesome program that you can use in your Apple III. So now there's absolutely no reason to use an Apple II. But he will be uh, on um, plug, plug, plug. He's going to be our guest on uh, the next Drop Three Inches. So keep your eye out for that. That should be out soon. Capital. Uh, so July 19th through 24th, 2016 is the next Kansas Fest. And that will be again at Rockhurst University in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. So run, don't walk to your calendars and mark that down. Now, you had mentioned that uh, there were a lot of new faces there this year, Kansas Fest, and it looks like some of them were uh, there to report on it. Yeah, there was a, quite a, a nice combination of news post and podcast that came out on uh, Vice.com. Uh, Vice is a kind of a pop culture site, and they have... I believe the uh, podcast section of it is called Motherboard, and or possibly that's their tech column. I'm not sure which, but in any case, uh, there was uh, yeah a couple of young fellows walking around with cameras and uh, microphones at the show, and turns out uh, they were these guys, and they did this very nice uh, podcast uh, sort of a view of uh, KFest as a first timer, as an outsider, more like. Um, and uh, I guess they had just heard about this thing and were like, well, let's go see what this is all about. So they weren't necessarily Apple II people themselves, but just wondered uh, what it was that uh, makes 70 uh, grown adults and some kids go uh, sleep over together uh, in <laughs> Kansas City and talk about 30-year-old computers together every year. 
Uh, so it's a great, uh, great podcast, great listen. It's kind of, it's got a bit of a, an NPR kind of feel, a little bit, of, a little bit of this American Life, a little bit of Radio Lab kind of feel to it, which uh, is it's a nice listen. And uh, there's also an accompanying uh, column, and the column and podcast have different content, so it's worth listening to both. And uh, it's really, I would say, a great summary uh, of the, of the event. Uh, it's really, I think, I think he hit all the high points. So if you're if you have someone who's interested or curious about what all of this is about, you could link them to this. And I'm sure as next year's event approaches, we'll all be uh, sharing this around as well to help spread the buzz. And there's even a picture of uh, James Littlejohn's Big Green Bus version 2.0. It's what it became. For those of you who have heard mention of it but uh, haven't seen it yet, there's a picture of he turned it into this extra super long truck thing, um, and uh, there's a photo of that now uh, in the uh, in the article. And now it, it does say that that 4 a.m. was planning a big reveal of who he was. He's going <laughs> to step on stage and accept his his, his accolades. Did that happen? That did not happen. Uh, he was there, and uh, many of us uh, know who, who he is now, <laughs> but um, my understanding is he wishes to uh, remain anonymous um, Fair I, enough. For, for various reasons, part because it's fun and I guess possibly because some of what he's doing is still, maybe still technically illegal. I'm not really sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, he continues to do good work on Twitter, so we'll continue to follow him there. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I asked uh, Jason Scott a long time ago when he did his um, uh, BBS documentary. There's kind of a little short section there on uh, Apple on uh, uh, piracy, and they've got uh, like the mini Apple and a couple of other well-known pirates who have decided to, you know, hey, that was me. But there are a lot of people out there that still don't want to talk about it because I guess they're, you know, some of these some of these developers at the program at at the companies took it really really personal when their stuff got. Uh, started showing up on the BBSs and and they're you know I don't think I don't think the legal repercussions are a concern as much anymore. But other than just you know maybe this guy's still out there looking for me and you know if I <laughs> if I show up and say that was me, who knows what's going to happen? So that's uh, I know that's at least part of why we don't see a lot of these old pirates going. Hey, here's what I did. Yeah, I think that's true, and and a reputation thing as well. Jason Scott's got a great story about. Uh, so he put up a lot of uh, cracker uh, uh, splash screens on archive.org, and he uh, added metadata for all of them with the hopes that you know when these old crackers would get bored one day and Google themselves, <laughs> uh, they would find it. And he said it worked. Uh, he started getting contacted by some of these uh, crackers, and one of them was, uh, I guess, a, a high-profile CEO of a, of a well-known company. <laughs> and uh, so he didn't want to reveal his identity, uh, but he talked to Jason, I guess, through some sort of elaborate... Um, uh, anonymization email service or something and uh, uh, just sort of reminisced a little bit but uh, that was as far as as it went as far as identifying this person so that's probably a factor as well they don't want their uh, shareholders uh, getting wind of it because <laughs> many of them are probably of that age now mm. uh, one last uh, little Kansas Fest note here if you haven't seen it yet uh, go to go to YouTube right now and, and watch um, KFest Funk it's uh, Stephen it's a Dr. Steve Weirich. Weirich? I never get that right. Mm -hmm. I always pronounce that wrong. Weirich, he did, yeah. yeah, he did this awesome music video parody and um, of K Fest and Apple II stuff, and uh, it's it's to the the tune of Uptown Funk by Bruno Mars, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really well done. Uh, Dr. Weirich does great musical stuff, uh, parody kinds of things. He did the intro. Some of you may know for. Uh, the Floppy Days podcast. Uh, he did the Happy Days spoof for that, and it's really, really well done. So, yep, definitely great watch. Got to watch this K-Fest one. Unfortunately, not everybody likes this as much, or at least doesn't have a sense of humor about 
people who want to go and have fun with their old computers. And then weirdly, this comes from Colt of Mac, the, the editor there, uh, posted a, um, a rather snarky and maybe a little bit mm, slightly insulting, but uh, come on, we're just at the humor type of blog post about, uh, uh, about us as well. So you can go and vent at him. <laughs> they're just jealous because they're not having any fun because no one <laughs> cares about their old computers. Sorry, John Lee. The creator of your vintage computers is dead. <laughs> That's right. Oh, zing. Bazinga. <laughs> Send your hate mail to Mike McGinnis. <laughs> it's really not that bad. Uh, Caney, I think his name is. Leander Caney is the editor of Cult of, of Mac.com. And he does, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's every week or whatever, but he does a little short video podcast of him in his office talking about whatever he wants to talk about. And he kind of goes through and um, sort of has the same response. I think probably you had last year, Quinn, mind blown about people like <laughs> going and having a great time. And it's not awful. And, um, you know, uh, uh, about Kansas Fest. So I imagine or at least I hope that, you know, some of this buzz will carry to next year and we'll have even more people. Yeah, it's funny. The thing, the, the aspect of it that's easy to condescend about, you know, a bunch of, you know, cranky old people get together and play with these, you know, obsolete computers. Uh, that same thing is sort of, is kind of what Jason Scott always says he loves about KVEST, which is, you know, the, the sincerity of it. It's just this sort of unironic, you know, nothing to prove uh, appreciation and adoration of this stuff. Uh, you know, yeah, if all people are welcome and if you just have an Apple II in your life or it means something to you in some way, come on down and, you know, we will uh, appreciate it with you with no judgment and uh, unironically. <laughs> we just like them. All right. Well, uh, we could go on and on about Kansas Fest, but we uh, should probably move on to some other news items here. Uh, what's, uh, looks like uh, some GS news on the heels of Burger Becky's appearance at uh, KFest. Is that right? So with all the uh, great stuff that Becky's doing now with her uh, updated releases and, and digging through her old archives and, and finding stuff that we just love to see. We talked about this, I think a month or two ago, she released the source code for, for Space Ace and, and put it online. About a week ago, uh, uh, somebody named Will Scullin posted that he had compiled the Space Ace source, he has shots of it running on his 2GS, and it looks like Burger Becky jumped in there so and, and to help out with that. So that's really cool because it's one thing to have the old source code out there, but it's just such a um, witch's brew of of variables and, and getting the right hardware and the right versions of compilers. Sometimes if you go back far enough, that it can be some some dark arts sometimes getting that source code to compile and run, especially the old stuff. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, There's lots of source code being released these days for old software, but it's quite another thing entirely to actually get it to build and run. You know, you don't have whatever obscure homebrew build environment the person might have used or, you know, whatever some compiler they used that uh, doesn't exist anymore. Or, you know, like Becky was talking about trying to get uh, AppWorks GS to run again. I mean, it, you'd have to somehow replicate the APW environment. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real achievement uh, by uh, by Will and Becky here to get to actually building and, and running again with the original assets and everything. It's very cool looking. I remember when um, Jordan Mechner released the source code for uh, Prince of Persia, uh, a while back and and somebody a few people like tried to compile and i think they eventually got a working copy of it but there were definitely some odd contortions and and um corners cut or dark alleys taken to to get there yeah so it's cool that 
cool that, that it doesn't look like it was actually that difficult to to get the source up and running for for space Ace. yeah well like uh, yeah like becky said she's very meticulous about maintaining her old source code and uh you know her old build environments and stuff as well so uh you know, uh, she had a, a easier time of it than I think most people would. You know, recently, uh, in a recent show, we talked about Jordan Mechner releasing the source code for Prince of Persia, and uh, I downloaded that, and uh, I made a brief effort to try and get it to run, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was became quickly clear that this was not going to be trivial to get this thing to actually build and run. And I know that has been done. There is someone out there who did that. I forget who, but uh, again, without the original art assets and uh, all the build environment and everything, it can be extremely challenging. Hmm. Well, so moving along, speaking of old games, uh, if I wanted to uh, get dysentery, but uh, really fast, how might I go about doing that, Mike? <laughs> well, you you could, I don't know if this would give you dysentery, and I don't, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't solve it if you did get it, but uh, Games Done Quick, um, which is um, exactly what it sounds like. It's a, uh, a group of people that play video games as fast as possible from start to finish for charity. They take donations and um, pledges and things like that. Um, took a shot at uh, the Oregon Trail on on an Apple IIe, a real piece of uh, hardware there, and they finished it in five minutes and thirty three seconds. That's <laughs> pretty great. I, I uh, speed runs are fascinating to me. Uh, I've, I've watched a lot of them for uh, modern games as well, and uh, it is quite astonishing uh, how fast most of these modern games can be done if you really know what you're doing. Uh, you know, a game that might take me many many hours uh, can often be solved in just a couple of minutes. Uh, it's pretty pretty crazy. I remember that. I think the first time I saw someone do a speed run it was through the original quake because id software had put uh, the recording capability you could record yourself playing it it would save it out as like a, a avi file or something like that and it was just amazing watching these people play from start to finish and it's i guess an accomplishment i don't know that would go on your tombstone necessarily but <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's a lot of fun at that point yeah, I think uh, I think it shows sort of a passion for uh, for the game. Kind of, you really have to love a game to explore it enough to find these little uh, tricks uh, to get through it. You know, quicker to optimize the path through the game. You know, uh, one of the most memorable speedruns that I watched was one of the older uh, uh, the Elder Scrolls games for the Xbox. You know, those are huge Bethesda RPGs that are you know designed to take hundreds of hours, and there's a playthrough of one of them. Uh, that's just a couple of minutes, and uh, it's <laughs> wow. uh, yeah, it involves running to a cave near where you start and making a bunch of potions, and then using a, kind of a trick to cast the spell that teleports you to this wizard at the very end of the game. And it's you know, it's this amazing uh, series of maneuvers that's fully legal. There's no you know hacking or anything involved. It's completely within the bounds of the game. Uh, but I can only imagine how many hundreds and hundreds of hours it would take to sort of figure out that such a path exists and then, you know, sit down and record it. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a real love of, of gaming right there. I, I do love seeing smart, innovative players coming up with um, ways to play within the game and succeed where the developer didn't necessarily intend you to, but you're not cheating. It's not, you're not relying on a bug or, or changing any code or anything like that. I, um, I think one of the, the most famous examples that, that I remember was when they killed Lord British in Ultima Online. Yes, that was amazing. I was actually playing Ultima Online at the time. That was a huge deal. And, and it was by the rules. They didn't, you know, there was no hacking, nothing, nothing really still got banned for, I think they still got banned, but, mm -hmm. but just the, You've made something wonderful that we love, and we're going to 
we're going to expand and build on this in ways that you didn't expect. That's right. It's, yeah. Uh, such a cool thing. Yeah. And Ultima Online was an early lesson in uh, MMOs, I think, for a lot of developers because uh, people vastly, the developers vastly underestimated how much of that kind of thing players were going to try and do. And uh, <laughs> so Ultima Online was just riddled with things like that. Uh, people building houses, you know, in the middle of the road and people, you know, blocking each other in, trapping each other on islands. I mean, the people did so much <laughs> of that that they had to continually be making massive changes to the gameplay to prevent people from just trolling each other and just being terrible people to each other it was uh it was quite a, quite a wild west that's kind of hilariously sad you know human ingenuity and the, the spirit of innovation and discovery leads us to screw each other over like that exactly just at least what we do online yeah at least in an online world where there's yeah in theory no consequences i guess <laughs> Okay, well, uh, we've been talking a little bit about our games today, obviously, and uh, we asked Becky about Wasteland 2. She wasn't involved in that, but I still love the heck out of that game. I'm pretty sure you did too, Quinn. I know a lot of my friends had a great time playing it, and if you want to go back and revisit it, there's going to be a director's cut release. Is that right? Yeah, it looks that way, and uh, uh, yeah, I uh, will definitely be checking that out. Uh, I Like I say, I'm also a huge Wasteland fan, and uh, the Wasteland 2 reboot is very, very cool. So uh, nice to see a, uh, a new version with uh, a little extra content. Now, right now, it looks like it's uh, at least initially going to only be released on the Xbox One in uh, middle of October. Typically, that's how it goes these days, I think. It's, you know, that one platform will get exclusivity for a little while, and then you'll, 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 you'll see other versions. So ho hopefully, if you don't have an Xbox One and you still want to play, you'll, you'll have a chance to do that. Yeah, that's a bit of a coup, actually. Uh, that uh, shows the sign of, uh, a sign of the health of the indie gaming industry these days, that uh, an indie game uh, kickstarted like this can actually get an Xbox One uh, exclusive. Um, but yeah, I'm sure we'll see this on other platforms uh, later on. All right. So, hmm, this next topic is interesting. Yeah, so there's, uh, uh, to, to paraphrase Carrington Vanston from, uh, from the RCR, if you've been holding off <laughs> upgrading RCR. from uh, GSOS 601 on your 2GS for 25 years, uh, it's, uh, you're clear to uh, <laughs> go ahead and do that upgrade now because uh, GSOS 6.02 and now, uh, as of this recording, 603 uh, have been released and this is kind of a community effort i know there's a lot of people that have contributed to this they uh have uh, a number of prominent uh, 2gs programmers uh have brought all of their various uh hacks and spot fixes uh for the bugs that were in system 6 together and uh kind of put out this sort of unofficial uh 602 update to gsos and now 603 so this is uh pretty exciting uh, and I think uh, the original version was released by uh, Antoine Vigneault and Bill Martins, uh, who we've talked a lot about on the show. But uh, my understanding is that um, uh, Andrew Rohan and Ian Johnson and a number of other folks have all, uh, their work is all in here uh, as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm gathering. Over the years, obviously, um, we've had plenty of time to wrestle with 2GS bugs and and workarounds and um, you know Nathan Mates way way back before he had his meltdown and stormed off and uh, was doing you know he did these these things called GUP updates the Grand Unified Patch Program I think is what it stands for and um, and it was sort of a a collection of fixes and patches that he and other people had come up with that he compiled and you would just load this you put the disk in your in your drive and and I think it was um, a C dev or something like that. 
and it would run in the background and sort of swat the bugs. Uh, they didn't, I don't think it actually patched any code. I could be wrong on this, but it, it made it a lot nicer to use some of the features in, in uh, on the 2GS because there's, there's one really hideous HFS bug that, you know, could could zap files and destroy data. And, and there was a bunch of stuff that Apple never got around to fixing. And now we should say that Apple is not involved with 602 or 603 at all. This is purely a community thing, but I guess there's been some, uh, there's been some developers who were surprised to find their code in, uh, in these new releases. And, uh, and I don't know, I haven't obviously gone through every single byte of code, but I guess not everything's been maybe credited. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, if uh, if if you're one of the developers who had uh, had your work included in this, uh, by all means, let us know. We'd love to give credit uh, where it's due on the show here. I think, yeah, there's a bit of confusion here about how and when it was released, and and maybe not everybody uh, was aware that their work uh, was in this. But uh, it's great to have you know uh, all these bugs fixed for for JSOS, and great to see continued development for it. So uh, definitely, you know, you know if, uh, if you're involved in this uh, project in any way, uh, definitely let us know at uh, uh, feedback at open-apple.net and we'll uh, spread the word. We should say that we are not um, hardened investigative journalists. Uh, we're, you know, we're not Woodward and Bernstein and we're not even the Bernstein Bears. <laughs> um, so we're not, you're not going to see a lot of dirt slung on this, I hope, but it would be nice if, if there is, if there are people who uh, were not credited, that then it would be nice to see them get the credit that, that they were due for the code that they contributed. For sure. Yeah, we're just a couple of schmucks with microphones, and uh, we're happy to see uh, any new efforts on uh, uh, the GS and 8-bit platforms, and hopefully no feelings are, are getting hurt here. Right. As And as per usual, you can just send your hate mail directly to me. Definitely. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of... Um... Oh, and, and I actually forgot to... to we I don't think we talked about one of the coolest features was was the um, the auto updating? I haven't played around with this too much, but I, I guess it's possible now to basically uh, can install the thing. One, you don't have to deal with the six floppies anymore. There's a you know, a, um, I don't know. It's it's called like I forget what it's called like a un. I think it was like a unified installer or something like that. But instead of having six different GSOS floppies that you had to keep swapping through, uh, now it's just one file, and and it uh, if you have uh, net access you can download patches directly to the operating system is that right yeah yeah i think so that's really cool and uh it also includes the uh internet or i mean the uh, ethernet drivers uh as well for like ethernet and so on so you know if you can get your gs on the internet that way uh that's all much better integrated now yeah it's a very cool effort glad to see more uh more gs development in any shape way shape or form and it is kind of funny to see the apple blogs freak out about it <laughs> There's a bunch of posts on on uh, blogs that are typically Mac blogs uh, that are just like shocked as shocked as hell that, that this is happening. It's like, come on, guys, we've been here the whole time developing stuff the whole time. <laughs> yeah, you know, every so often uh, our community gets uh, a little periscope goes up into the mainstream, uh, <laughs> usually through no fault of our own. And uh, this is one of those items that, for whatever reason, broke through the noise. And uh, I've seen, yeah, I saw this on Hackaday. Uh, I saw this in a comment thread on Boing Boing. Um, Mac Rumors. Yeah, Mac Rumors. Uh, I think called the Mac ran it. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's awesome how every so often the mainstream kind of uh, gets a little window into uh, our crazy band of, of uh, broken toys uh, down here at hmm. K-Fest and, and related communities uh, banging away on this stuff. Uh, so, yeah, we're still here. And we're still working on this stuff just because we love it. 
since we're on the topic, I'll jump down the list a little bit here. Uh, there was uh, an Ars Technica editor that found an Apple II Plus in his parents' garage or basement uh, and was asking people what he should do with that. So that's that's uh, definitely spawned some interesting conversations over on ours, and we'll have a link in the show notes. Quinn, what would you do if you found a II Plus in your parents' attic? I would write software for it <laughs> and build hardware for it, just like I'm doing. Uh, yeah, you know, it's every time one of those threads comes up, uh, they seem to come up more and more often now uh, with the increasing popularity of retro computing. You know, uh, I see it a lot on Hackaday, for example. And every time I see one of these threads, I always jump in and I'm like, hey, you know, here's what Kansas Fest is, and here's, you know, uh, A2 Central, and here's Ultimate Micro, and there's actually a whole lot of stuff going on by a, very, a lot of very smart people, uh, because the tone of these articles is usually like, oh, wow, look at this useless old stupid thing that no one would ever care about, <laughs> you know, uh, let's do something ridiculous with it as a stunt, you know, for this one-off blog post or whatever. Uh, so, and then the threads always really quickly fill up with, OMG, Oregon Trail, and oh, I my first computer was that this, works. and I did this with it, and yeah, it just immediately fills up Print with shop. This, yeah, with these people who had these things because, frankly, most computer users of a certain age had a, some access to an Apple II, and so yeah, the thread rapidly fills up with these personal uh, uh, anecdotes, um, and so yeah, I just kind of like to sneak in there with some facts about uh, what uh, what's actually going on now t today, and that this isn't some sort of uh, cheap stunt for an Ars Technica column or whatever. Uh, so yeah, I would encourage our listeners to do the same. Just kind of go in there and post and say, hey, you know, here's a link to Kansas Fest, and here's a link to lots of other cool Apple II stuff. So you're the one responsible for keeping this community alive. <laughs> That's right. I'm personally yes. It's <laughs> right. just this, you. Yes, this community that I've only been in for a year. I'm, I'm <laughs> the personal savior of it. No. Uh, you know, it's efforts like that that actually brought me into it. So, uh, you know, it's listening to podcasts. And, uh, you know, I found retro computing podcasts kind of through blog posts like that. I think the very first one I listened to was Earl Evans's Retro Bits. And uh, from his podcast, I kind of slowly moved my way around and suddenly found, at some point I found Open Apple and, you know, everybody was talking about Kansas Fest. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's how you get pulled in. You know, this is a comment on a blog post like this is kind of the uh, the uh, gateway drug to uh, <laughs> Kansas Fest. So <laughs> the more first the merrier. First one's free. That's right. <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of Kansas Fest, as we are wont to do, uh, I had a lot of people, I wore my, uh, proudly wore my uh, open Apple t-shirt to Kansas Fest this oh, year. Yeah. And uh, Mike and I, for fun, uh, at one point last year, made each other shirts. And, no one else can have um, one. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, it turns out that might be true. Uh, <laughs> we've been yeah. meaning for a while to, to actually set up uh, a, a store where people could buy open Apple t-shirts. And... Uh, after K-Fest, during K-Fest, people were constantly asking me, hey, can I have one of those shirts? And Or can I buy one of those shirts? And uh, so I, uh, when I got home from K-Fest this year, I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to set this up. And we got permission uh, from the gracious and wonderful Peter Neubauer to use his artwork. Uh, he, of course, did our logo for anyone who doesn't know. And I set up the Cafe Press store, and it was up for, I think, eight hours. And uh, we got a letter from their legal department saying, you can't use that image uh, because <laughs> some bot, I guess, identified the uh, Apple logo in the image. <laughs> the, 
The rainbow colors. Uh, yes, that's the silly thing. It's not even really their logo anymore, and it's so small and in the corner. And uh, yeah, it's. You could have pointed out that this has been on on Apple's own iTunes store forever, which they approved. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but but I think because if you if we did this, you would have to buy the T-shirts. So there's money being exchanged, and that's when lawyers get interested i don't yeah. you know i i don't i really don't think apple would care one way or the other if we no. if we charge 15 bucks for a t-shirt but uh i get why cafe press is afraid of that and doesn't want to go there and and um, yeah. i'm sure we'd get the same thing at zazzle or one of these other sites although i did see a thread in on the enthusiast group where i think the uh the sponsors of the 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 recent French Apple II get together that just happened I think last weekend created a little uh, T-shirt f- um, using an actual I think it, that was an official Apple design with the kind of the it's it's the the apple on the the rainbow apple on the right side and it's angled upward and it's like the streaking rainbow up to it from the lower portion of the left side of the shirt uh, which I think is actually an Apple um, an Apple design as well and they have a store up but it may be a little bit different because they're in France so I don't know. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. And yeah, as you say, it makes perfect sense. I mean, there's no upside to permitting the design for Cafe Press. I mean, it's not, they know they're not going to make much money and uh, the risk of legal action, even if that risk is very small, uh, there's just no upside to it for them. I mean, the way Cafe Press works is, you know, they basically, they make money from your design and then they give you what they call a royalty uh, in exchange. So, uh, you know, we would have, we were just trying to put the shirts up there and just break even just so people could have them. But uh, that... Uh, it's not going to work that way. Uh, we may try and uh, print some up at Custom Ink, something like that, and physically, you know, you can make these shirts for yourself uh, one at a time. So we might try to make some and just physically bring them to KFest next year to be sold, but no promises on that. It depends how big our luggage is. <laughs> uh, Ken and I actually talked about that well, way back when, you know, maybe doing a t-shirt sales or, or even, you know, if we had a... Um, and we have a guest on offering them a free T-shirt just for having been on. Uh, the problem that we kept running into was, well, okay, so do we, you know, we're going to have to order uh, 10 shirts in each size and each color in each cut, you know, just because somebody might want that one instead of this one. You know, it's it's we're not running a retail store here, so it's not like we're, you know, concerned, you know, trying to uh, manage inventory. Um, but it does present sort of a problem, I guess, maybe um, – you know, they, and I can cut this later if we need to, but maybe an option would be that you could write in and tell us your size and cut and we'll send us the money and we'll send you a t-shirt. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's true. Yeah. We can't necessarily stock a million sizes and then we would risk uh, somebody not getting one who wanted one at the show. And that would be really sad. So yeah, we'll, we'll keep working on this. Maybe, um, oh, maybe on the K-Fest list next year when it gets to be that time, we can just announce, hey, we'll have some T-shirts. Let us know your uh, your preferred size and color and stuff, and we'll just print them and bring them. And I, I don't know. But it would be nice to be able to get them out there. But because we decided to go with that logo, um, <laughs> it's, it has presented some some um, uh, twists in, in the tail, if you will. Uh, and if anybody has maybe an idea for an easy way for us to do this that doesn't involve... Uh, cafe press let us know yeah for sure all right um since we can't stop talking about steve jobs around here um in addition to not only the documentary that we've been that mike's been talking about incessantly for months now and there's another documentary that's coming out that's an indie one i guess um and that's playing at the local indie film fest or the the indie film festivals and things right now 
Uh, Steve Jobs will now be in opera. Oh, goody. <laughs> That's all I have to add to that. <laughs> all right. Well, I think I can maybe come up with a little bit more to say. The New York Times is, is, uh, is reporting that the Santa Fe Opera has announced that its next commission work will be the revolution of Steve Jobs with the R in the kind of, you know, the registered trademark with the parans around it. Um, and of course, the usual don't call it I opera jokes apply. Yes. Um, and oh, and yes, we have a woo section. We will not have a jobs news section in the same naming fashion. Yeah, that that would not be appropriate. No. All right. Or just very confusing. Yes. Just, just yelling Jews. <laughs> yes. We are an open and inclusive podcast here, folks. So. Uh, so we've talked about Business Insider a few times on the show. They often have retro themed uh, posts that crop up. But uh, they don't have the best reputation for getting uh, getting things right, do they? Well, this was the this is the online rag, I guess. Um, that uh, a <laughs> tabloid. Couple, we said, there you go, tabloid. That's good. They, a couple. We, I think we talked about them like a month or two ago, where they basically reposted the same Apple II story with a different headline two years later. Oh yeah, yeah so, right. But they have an article called "The Twelve Best Tech Commercials of All Time," and the first one listed is for the app, the uh, 1984 Super Bowl ad that Apple did for Macintosh. Unfortunately, Business Insider doesn't know it's for Macintosh. <laughs> oh, Business Insider, you're so wacky. The the headline is uh, as they wrote it reads: Apple's 1984 Super Bowl ad put the company and its Apple II computer on the map. Um, and the funny thing is the embedded video right below it that's actually on YouTube says it's for the Macintosh. Clearly they have some interns uh, putting together this blog post or whatever. I, I need know. to get a job there, man, because I could, I, could, I could stand to get paid and, and like not pay attention to anything that I'm doing and just post stuff. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be pretty, uh, pretty low bar there to write blog posts for Business Insider. So uh, meanwhile, we got uh, Time Magazine doing a little bit of blogging as well. What's going on here? Right. So this is, uh, I think this is Harry McCracken. Oh, the page is loading. Hold on a second. Uh, no, this is not. Uh, this is uh, posted by Lily Rothman. I'm not familiar with that reporter, but um, I know that um, there was such a thing called uh, the Tandy Company, and apparently they made some computers or something that came out uh, around the same time as the Apple II. I don't really know why I'm talking like Stewie Griffin right now. Yeah, I don't know. There, would... <laughs> there was other computers, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, and um, the headline is the personal computer that beat Apple for a while. Um, but I, it's actually it's actually a well-written piece about, about the TRS-80 um, and Tandy's early efforts to get into and stay alive in the computer industry. And because we had some TRS... Folks show up at Kansas Fest this year. I thought it might be uh, might be a little appropriate. Yeah, why not? We're trying to uh, the Kansas Fest is a is a big tent, folks. So uh, people should uh, not be afraid to come to Kansas Fest, even if you're a TRS eighty. No, get out. <laughs> yeah, there was actually a lot of talk this year at K Fest because we had quite a large Atari contingent, and uh, as as Carrington said, we uh, we didn't spray for Atari, and uh, this year there's more of them. <laughs> and uh, there was uh, even even a, a certain Commodore user, Mr. Whalen, was there as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, as long as one of your computers is an Apple II, then we don't care. Uh, well, I think the solution to that's actually pretty simple. It's like when you when you're trying to get rid of the Kiefer Sutherland vampires that are living in your abandoned hotel, you just have to kill the head vampire. Just make sure that that uh, that um, uh, Kevin Savitz doesn't show up, and that'll take care of the problem. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Kevin Savitz brings He's the head he Atari goes. vampire, Boo Atari. <laughs> 
All right. So I think that's all the news we have. Is that right? Uh, looks like it. Um, no woos this month. Darn it. <laughs> we had a lot last month, so uh, let's 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 give give the folks a break. Yeah, we're we're, we're I think we're probably gonna filter some of that, maybe to things that are more directly appropriate to, to Apple II, and less about hey, you showed up at this college to talk. Yes. Here's what Waz thinks about uh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Just kidding, Waz. We love you. Well, uh, I don't think we have any eBay either, which makes perfect sense because we don't talk about eBay on this show. So why don't we move on to weird gaming? You know Choplifter, you know Loadrunner, but do you know this? It's time for a weird game. So my pick this month is Windwalker, the 2GS version. Uh, Last month, as we were talking about the game, uh, you got me enthused about it because it seemed to be, uh, you know, I I had avoided Windwalker because of how bad Mobius was, and but you convinced me that there was some merit, and so I played it for a while on the on the the two E version and and on my two E, and it was great. I had a great time, but I kept thinking, man, I I thought there was. It came out so late. I I swore there was like see. I I swore seeing boxes. I could remember seeing boxes of of the two GS version at Egghead and things. And it turns out that yes, there there also was a two GS version of Windwalker. And I just thought that we should mention that because it is different. The interface is different enough um, that it's I think also worth a playthrough. In addition to the uh, slightly upgraded graphics, you also have mouse interaction, which you don't, obviously you don't with the Apple IIe. So, for example, when you're in combat and you're sliding back and forth and you're doing your little kung fu moves, uh, you can click on, on those like little shadow figures along the bottom of the screen now, uh, the bottom of the window now that you can click on. And when you do it, he will attempt to... to um, execute that move and you can if you click on two or three of them at a time it'll try to chain them together i i found that you end up just dying if you do that but if you're a fan of this game like i now am then you should definitely check out that version very cool yeah yeah it's an interesting game for sure uh yeah i think i'd forgotten that there was a 2gs version so thanks for reminding me about that oh and the music is uh different and there's a little bit different text as well so yeah it's not just a a an apple 2e game running on a 2gs cool Wow, we yeah uh, we got we pulled you away from your eight bits and your uh, Apple three to play a GS game. That's that might be a record on Open Apple. It's crazy. I gotta get away from you. <laughs> uh, so uh, my pick this month is uh, a game called Acid Trip. Now this is definitely uh, getting back to the uh, roots of of weird gaming. I uh, Are you sure this is a game and not just something you did. <laughs> yes. Well, you'll wonder uh, after uh, playing this thing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was uh, feeling a little bit guilty about just using this segment, uh, or I should say abusing this segment for whatever game I feel like talking about. Uh, but uh, So yeah, this is this is a game from the uh, deep dark corners of the Apple II game development community from back then. And uh, it's how to describe this thing. It's sort of an adventure game and an arcade game. And it's just written, uh, it's written by a fellow named Demetrius Cross. And I suspect that's a pseudonym. And so, uh, yeah, it's, I'm not even going to attempt to describe the gameplay on this thing. You're just going to have to play it. The uh, <laughs> title screen will tell you everything you need to know about it. Uh, it's, a, it's definitely a trippy-looking uh, title screen, clearly made with uh, Graphics Magician, for those of you who are interested in those things. Uh, the names of the levels, to give you a taste, there's four levels. Uh, they are called The Trip Begins, The Guardian's Playpen, The Astral Cyclone, and Shades of a Robot. 
All right. Oh, no. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you play Hector Cherney, who just dropped 600 micrograms of LSD, and uh, you basically play uh, his trip uh, off the Earth of and you do. back again. Uh, so they, uh, the author says there are four levels finished now, but 9 to 12 will be in the final version. Uh, I'm perhaps the... Uh, author did a little too much role-playing of, uh, of his own game because those levels never appeared. Uh, but the <laughs> he original went off on his own trip and never came back. It's right, but uh, the original uh, four levels are here and they are playable and uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's weird, and it's a game, so here it is in Weird Gaming. Uh, it plays uh, perfectly fine in Virtual Apple 2, uh, courtesy of the uh, Call Apple folks, so we will link to that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, if you want to see uh, something that, uh, this is the kind of game I'm sure it just, it was only distributed on uh, BBS's. Uh, in fact, uh, it's funny, you look in the, uh, the instructions, uh, still have a, uh, a, a reference to uh, the something called the Lynx uh, BBS in the 305 area code. The phone number is here, hmm. and uh, the author asks you to send him an email on that BBS uh, for his opinion. So no doubt that's how this was distributed uh, on <laughs> wow. BBSs. Uh, and uh, yep, it's let us weird. know if he writes back. Yes, I would love to know. Someone call that BBS and see if it's still there. Uh, 305-772-1076. Actually, don't call it because someone else probably has that phone number now. I apologize to the sweet old lady that answers the phone. Yes, we (laughs) deeply apologize to whoever now has that phone number. Both of our listeners are now going to call you. Uh, uh, So there you go. That's my pick this month for Weird Gaming. Let's roll on into feedback. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. So we got lots of good feedback this month. Uh, this first email is one of my favorites. The uh, in fact, possibly one of my favorites that we've ever received. It's uh, from listener <laughs> Glenn. And you know, a couple months ago we talked about Orphan Black, uh, and there was a yeah. brief, yeah, there was a brief cameo of an Apple II monitor and possibly a DOS 3.3 esque catalog display in that show when they dug up an old computer for part of their mystery. Uh, so listener uh, Glenn wrote in and uh, says, "Hi folks, I was listening to the podcast and thought it was cool you picked up on my Apple II monitor on Orphan Black. Uh, oh. Apparently, it was Glenn's." Uh, He goes on to say, my brother has been a set dresser on season two and three of that show. He asked me if I had a couple of monitors they could use for that scene. So I rented them three and they chose the Apple IIe monitor. Uh, I also provided them some screenshots of what the font looked like on the Apple IIe and they doctored it up on the screen to show what they wanted. Uh, So there you go. That's why it was an Apple IIe monitor and that's why it had a distinct DOS 3.3 look to uh, that display. Uh, he cool. said, uh, he goes on to say, I squirmed a bit when they showed it with uh, with an IBM XT, but hey, this is the TV business we're talking about. <laughs> uh, keep up the great podcasting. Well, thank you, Glenn. I absolutely loved that email. Um, you know, I can't, I, to, I never even imagined that we might get the backstory behind how that Apple IIe monitor happened to make an appearance on, uh, on a, a major uh, TV show like that. So, uh, it looks like the Open Apple podcast listenership is a little more uh, wide-reaching than we thought. Yeah, that's that's really really odd. I, I figured you know all, all six of our listeners are down in the basement and they just gather around this old-time Victrola and, and and listen to us and you know it's all crackly and hissy and they sit around the fire and poke the logs and call each other Ma and Pa or something. I don't know, <laughs> but I uh, certainly didn't didn't figure anyone in Hollywood would would uh, have anything to do. Not not because. 
they would hate us necessarily just because they probably had better things to do, but that's pretty awesome. That is indeed. Uh, cool. Well, moving right along, we've got uh, listener Olivier who writes to us from France, and uh, he's writing with regards to the uh, Tony Diaz interview from a couple months ago. And uh, Tony mentioned, uh, I think that he th- uh, he thought wasn't he wasn't sure if maybe the ROM three was only sold in the U.S. or if it was available in other countries. Oh right. Mm-hmm. And uh, Olivier says that yes, in fact, the ROM three uh, was available in France in May of 1990. So every 2GS sold after June 1990 in France uh, was a ROM three. So that's good to know. That actually makes sense because I remember in the FTA demos, uh, there was references to ROM 1s and ROM 3s because they deemed the ROM 1 to be the superior of the two for some reason. And uh, so they used to take cheap shots at the ROM 3. It's a, a tricky thing when you're trying to track down manufacturing history, probably with any company, but Apple, even back then, I, you know, when they weren't maybe necessarily as secretive as they are now, but they didn't publish anything you know they, in fact i think Ant, it was antoine who set up that big spreadsheet uh uh for apple 2gs serial numbers to try and figure out how many were produced because apple never said uh tracking some of that stuff down can be can be tough and it's neat to to hear somebody hear from somebody who has knowledge of of that yeah for sure uh okay so moving right along we've got uh, next up listener gary uh writes in and uh He says, I guess he was listening to our Tony Diaz episode uh, during uh, Kansas Fest this year. He happened to, uh, he wasn't at K-Fest, but happened to listen to the show during K-Fest. And uh, he lives lives in the area. So, uh, yeah, I guess he says uh, he wanted to get out there uh, Saturday, but was uh, unable to make it. So uh, I guess he just missed us. So hopefully we'll see you again next year, Gary. Thanks for writing in. Ooh, Gary. (laughs) Moving along, uh, we've got listener Tony writes in. Uh, hello, Mike Quinn and all former OpenApple hosts. Uh, as a result of listening to OpenApple, uh, I have finally seen Halt and Catch Fire via Netflix and now record each new weekly episode. Uh, this I've also burned through all episodes of the IT crowd, uh, and again, from hearing about it on OpenApple. Well, great. Uh, he says, I'm also a subscriber of at least one year to Juiced GS. That's an excellent choice. And I enjoy listening to OpenApple and many other podcasts on my daily commute and often joke that I wish my commute were longer. <laughs> I do not share that wish with you. I have a long commute as well. Uh, it's kind of bad for you, Tony. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you're discovering Apple II through our show, but it makes me kind of sad. <laughs> well, we'll, uh, we'll endeavor to flap our gums a little longer for, uh, for, for the commute. <laughs> uh, so he says, especially since I recently started a new job, which is uh, 2.2 miles closer to home. Uh, he goes on to say that's a little less, uh, that's a little more than 12 to 15 minutes of fun-filled, fact-packed 8-bit history and podcast time uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, so let's see, uh, there's other acquisitions as a result of being an Open Apple listener. Stephen Weirich's book, uh, which I believe is titled Sophistication and Simplicity. Uh, he's bought himself a license for Virtual 2. He's bought himself the new Wazpack. He's bought himself Chris Torrance's assembly lines and PDF copies of the originals. <laughs> so there you go, the power of the Open Apple podcast to uh, sell other people's stuff. <laughs> we are happy to be a voice for those who are doing good work in the community. Uh, he says he really enjoyed uh, listening to Tony Diaz rattle off Apple II history like it was yesterday. That guy is amazing. He, yes, he is. And he has the impedance of every trace in the Apple II memorized. I would not be surprised. 
Uh, then he goes on to ask uh, actually about our show notes, which is, uh, I'm glad he asked because I don't think we talk about that very much. Well, we talk endlessly about the fact that show notes exist, but perhaps not uh, where you can actually uh, find them. So in case anyone doesn't know, uh, you can go to open-apple.net and our show notes are on there. Uh, each uh, show, each uh, each episode gets a little blurb and there's a, a more uh, link that you can click there, which will expand to uh, detailed show notes, uh, bullet point lists of basically everything we talk about and a link to what we're talking about. Uh, so you can look at that while you're listening. Or if you listen to the show on your iPod, the iPod where it shows the big uh, Open Apple logo in the middle, if you tap that, it will actually just show you the show notes there as well. So that's my favorite way to do it with other people's podcasts as you do that. Uh, and that allows you to just tap right on the links on uh, on your phone while you listen. So all good options for the show notes. I hope people uh, read them because uh, it takes me a lot of time to uh, generate those. <laughs> Not as long as it takes Mike to edit, but uh, <laughs> long enough. Okay, moving along. The last email I've got is from listener Ben, who says, I just picked up a Waz Edition 2GS from the basement of a restaurant. Uh, it has a GS RAM card with four of the six megabytes full. So that's a pretty good find. Uh, he's asking uh, if he wants to fill up the rest of it. He's asking what kind of ROM chips, or RAM chips rather, he needs uh, to do that. And uh, I don't have the answer to that off the top of my head, but if uh, listeners know what kind of uh, RAM chips he should use, by all means, write us in and we'll uh, pass that information along. It says he also found some external drives and uh, an image writer, all of which had half an inch of gunk covering it. So always nice to hear about an Apple II being rescued from the basement of a restaurant. I bet it had grease and all kinds of nastiness all over it. So thanks for <laughs> writing in Ben. And uh, do you have any feedback for us, Mike? Yeah, I actually have two. The first is uh, from Todd George. And he's another um, relatively, I guess, newcomer, uh, relative newcomer to the Apple II community. And he's writing in to complain. Uh, in fact, the title of his uh, email is hate mail. <laughs> He says, yeah, yeah, nobody actually sending hate mail uses that subject line. I do have an extra grind, though. I just bought an Apple IIGS off of Craigslist. I'm a Commodore guy since 1983 or so. I still have my original Commodore 64 and 128. Do you see the problem here? Well, yes, you still have your Commodores. That's the problem. Clearly. Um, he says, um, he goes on to say, you've ruined me with all your incessant talk about Apple, and I'm in, and there's no turning back. I hate you guys. <laughs> Seriously, though, I love the podcast. I keep thinking about recording some feedback in case you wanted to play it on the air, but haven't got around to that, so I thought I'd send an email instead. I decided to send it now as I just got back from the Craigslist deal, and I'm excited to tear into the new-to-me retro gear. In fact, I listen to Open Apple during my hour-long commute every day. I also listen to the short ride... I also listen on the short ride to and from the 2GS pickup as I figured uh, that was only the right thing to do. It's your fault after all. Uh, a long, long time ago, as I was working through your back catalog of shows, you had mentioned your uh, downsizing your collection a bit. By you, I mean Mike, uh, as it sounds like he is typically responsible for reading the hate mail. Yep, I sure am. Um, just in case Quinn sees this instead. I don't know if this project ever happened or maybe is continuing to happen, but if so, I am in the market for a 3.5-inch floppy drive for the 2GS. And uh, Todd, I will email you after the show about that. Um, and the rest of the 
paragraph his details about that. He says, I didn't get to Kansas Fest due to work schedule conflicts, uh, but I'm fully planning on attending next year. Well, Todd, that's because your priorities are all wrong. <laughs> Above all else, keep up the awesome work. And he says he's loving the addition of Quinn. Oh, well, thank you. And if you come to Kansas Fest, you will walk away with more three and a half inch drives than you know what to do with. Yes, those are those some some Apple II items are difficult to find and expensive and others are um, more than you know what to do with. And if you're in the hobby, they just seem to appear in your garage, in your closet and wherever else you store stuff. I don't know how that happens, but uh, I'll email you after the, after we're done recording. Let's see. And I don't know why I'm telling you that because you'll hear this long after that. <laughs> we did get a comment um, on the website posted uh, to last month's show, the, uh, the one that we did with Elaine Nooney. Uh, this is from Peter and Peter. And I, I'm sort of confused here. Um, he's He's got two quotes. The first one says, you did it, Peter. The first real crack at Raston. Uh, and the second one says, very good. So the back door is now found. And then he simply says, Antoine didn't complete either of the challenges. Hmm. Okay. So um, uh, if we uh, made that error, then uh, we apologize. And thank you for pointing out, Peter. Indeed. All right. Well, if you would like to write us here on the show, uh, by all means, drop us an email at feedback at open-apple.net. We always love to hear from you. Yep. Uh, looking forward to it. And hopefully this won't be another three-hour show. <laughs> and then there's one thing I'll, I'd like to add just before we close out. You know, uh, people have asked to uh, buy our T-shirts partly uh, to sort of help support the show, and we really, really appreciate that. You know, running a show uh, does cost us money, actually, uh, mainly Mike. And uh, so we're going to be setting up a Patreon. And uh, so if you want to yeah. contribute to the show, that would be a great way to do it. Uh, you know, a couple bucks here and there, anything you feel like uh, contributing to that uh, would really help us out, defer the costs of uh, hosting the audio and, and running the show. And uh, so we will have the details on that in the show notes for you to uh, hopefully direct your generosity. If you like the show, then um, yeah, uh, by all means, you know, I mean, and of course the show is always going to be free, so don't worry about that. But uh, if you're feeling generous, uh, we would sure uh, appreciate it. All right, Mike, uh, it's been another great month. Uh, if you've got nothing else to add, I think we can wrap it up. I think that does it for me. Thank you again, Quinn. And again, it was great having uh, Burger Becky on. Um, it's always wonderful to hear from uh, people who are not not only who those who are contributing today, but those who made all this possible back in the day. Like she, you know, she said that she's worked on way more than 250 games. I, now, granted, I, I'm sure a lot of that includes more modern stuff, but still, I mean, just the the body of her work and the contribution uh, to 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 Apple. To, to the Apple II community uh, has been amazing. So it's great when somebody like that will, you know, not only come back and, and start contributing again, but, you know, take some time to talk to us about it here on the show and at, and at Kansas Fest. Yeah, big thanks to Becky for, for joining us here this month. All right, everybody. We'll see you next month. Bye, everyone. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. <laughs> Queen calls talk. Listen to some crazy lady talk about Apple IIs for three hours.
Quinn talks about her apple. Yeah, baby, yeah. All eight bits. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so this, that got weird. Okay. 